Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to season three. On this week's episode, we've got three guests. First up, we've got the duo, Dr. Becker and Dr. Wu. These are two imaging specialists in Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and they're going to be talking about some advances in prostate cancer imaging. Is every bit of new imaging good imaging? We're going to talk about that. Next up, we've got Dr. Tom Newman. Dr. Newman is Professor Emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco. With Michael Cohen, he literally wrote the book called Evidence-Based Diagnosis. We're going to talk about that. It's now out in the second edition. You won't want to miss this far-ranging discussion. And first up this week, we're going to have the monologue on the paper. The paper, that's the talk of the town. Racial and ethnic variation in nasal gene expression of transmembrane serine protease 2, or TMPRSS2. This is the paper that came out last week in JAMA, and it's been deemed all sorts of things, particularly racist. The authors are racist and the piece is racist. This week, we're going to explore that and two other questions. So stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. So first up, racial ethnic variation in nasal gene expression of TMPRSS2. This is a nasal gene expression study that came out from the folks at my favorite, Mount Sinai, New York City. You know, I love you, Mount Sinai. Keep anticoagulating, folks. Okay. Anyway, we before we get into this paper, I think, you know what? It might even be worth it to just read it aloud because it is a short research letter. And something makes me wonder what percent of people who've commented have read it in full. So let's just read it aloud. Coronavirus 2019 or COVID-19 has disproportionately affected communities of color. That's true. In many areas of the U.S., infection and death rates for COVID-19 are two to three times higher in black individuals than their proportion of the population. Severe SARS-CoV-2 is spread by airway contact and uses transmembrane serine protease 2 or TMPRSS2 to facilitate viral entry and spread. Host expressed TMPSSR2 on nasal bronchial epithelium activates the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and cleaves the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor to which the virus binds, enabling SARS-CoV-2 to enter the body. Racial and ethnic differences in TMPRSS2 gene-related activity in prostate tissue have been associated with disproportionately higher incidents of prostate cancer in black men versus white men. Recognizing that many factors contribute to COVID-19 health disparities, we investigated TMPRSS2, nasal gene expression, in a racially and ethnically diverse cohort. So what do they do? Methods. It's a cross-sectional study. Uses nasal epithelium collected from 2015 to 2018 from individuals in the Sinai system, a cohort they've previously studied. Healthy individuals and individuals with asthma underwent nasal brushing for research on asthma biomarkers. Self-identified race ethnicity was queried given prior associations between race ethnicity and asthma. RNA isolation of brushings followed RNA sequencing, sequence alignment, and normalization. The Mount Sinai Institutional Review Board approved this study. 
They were busy. They're also proving anticoagulation. Written informed consent was obtained from participants. Linear regression modeling adjusted for age, sex, and asthma with TMPR SS2 expression in log base 2 counts per million as a dependent variable and self-identified race ethnicity as the independent variable and was performed using R. Results. The cohort, 305 people, was 8.2% Asian, 15.4% Black, 26% Latino, 9.5% individuals of mixed race ethnicity, and 40% White. Of the participants, 49% were male and 49% had asthma. Among the racial ethnic groups, nasal gene expression of TMPR SS2 was highest in Black individuals. I'll just read you the mean. The mean, 8.64. And that's, of course, log 2 counts per million. The N is 47. Asian individuals was 8.07. The N is 25. Latinos was 81. The mean is 8.02. Individuals of mixed race ethnicity, the mean was 7.97. And white individuals with a sample size of 123, the mean was 8.04. So it's very clear that everyone else is low, and black individuals are higher based on their figure. TMPR SS2 expression was significantly higher in black individuals compared to Asian, Latino, mixed race, and white individuals. P less than 0.001 based on linear regression figure and table. And there were no significant associations between TMPR SS2 expression and age, sex, or asthma. Discussion. This is the key. This study of nasal epithelial gene expression in a racially ethnically diverse cohort showed significantly higher expression of TMPR SS2 in black individuals compared to other self-identified racist ethnicities. Given the essential role of TMPSSR2 in SARS-CoV-2 entry, higher nasal expression of TMPR SS2 may contribute to the higher burden of COVID-19 among black individuals. TMPR SS2 inhibitors such as camistat mesylate are undergoing clinical trials to test their utility for COVID-19 treatments. The finding of racial ethnic variation emphasizes that inclusion of diverse participants and analyses stratified by race ethnicity should be incorporated into such trials. The limitations of this study include its modest cohort size constrained to one metropolitan region and participant age range of four to 60 years. Although this study suggests one factor that may partially contribute to COVID-19 risk among New York area black individuals, many other factors are likely, especially because gene expression and race ethnicity reflect multiple social, environmental, and geographic factors. Section editor, Jody Zilke. Corresponding author, Supinda Bunyavanich, MDMPH, Mount Sinai. Well, well, well. You have published a study on gene expression profiling where you used self-identified race as the basis to compare results. I promise listeners that on this week's podcast, I'm going to answer three questions about this paper. One, is it true? Is this really a true association found? Two, is it a useful one? And three, is it racist? Those are the big three questions. Why do I ask these three questions? Well, this article quickly got itself ratioed. You know what that means? It got obliterated on Twitter. So let's see some of the lovely comments. Here are some. Come on, Jamma. You need to do better. Race is not biological. For the 1,000th time, racism is the reason for disproportionate COVID burden in minorities group, not race. Another person writes, race is not genetic. Do better. Another person writes, it is 2020. This is unacceptable. Race is social, not biological. More to come. Ladies and gentlemen, one more bias study. More to come. Racism in science, shaking my head. Does it ever end? Who reviewed this and thought it was okay to publish? Jam up, people are tired. Tired of headlines like this. Tired of scientists stereotyping racial differences without confounding for racism. Do you have a diversity review board? The nicest thing I can say about this study is it is grasping at straws to ignore the well-documented social contributors to health inequality related to COVID. This feels racist. Uh, no, 
it is structural racism. That's the explanation, and that's where the medical field needs to focus its energies. While it's not surprising, it is absolutely asinine that JAMA is publishing this bullshit, and publishing equals supporting. The subtle racist inclinations disguised as science must fall. Race is never a biologic phenomenon, but a social construct. Race is not biological. Racism, not race, is the burden. I'm only five weeks into medical school, and I already know this. JAMA, do better. This is not science. This is racism. So, this really got torpedoed, really torpedoed. And I was preparing some thoughts on it. And I, I guess I guess my thoughts, of course, are going to be a little bit nuanced and don't really fall, I think, in any sort of clear category. So I will just do my very best to try to articulate that. Well, one, I think before I even get into it too deep in the weeds, I think many people who listen to this podcast who follow my research should know that I am a generally somebody who's skeptical about what we will learn from genetics at all. You know, when it comes to cancer medicine, we have a love affair with precision oncology, sequencing everyone and combining drugs and magical combinations. I'm one of the biggest um, critics of that approach, believing that the benefits are modest or, or minimal or worse than standard of care therapies, that it's unlikely to yield durable remissions for the majority of patients with cancer. I do think it'll work well for sort of rare tumor types, but I'm generally a critic of that. Um, I think the other thing that's worth saying is that I'm a big critic of and a follower of sort of the large gene-based claims that Francis Collins and others made um, back at the dawn of Human Genome Project, all the sort of magical things we're going to be dealing with right now. You know, we sequence somebody and know what's the best blood pressure medicine to give them. Um, of course, those predictions, prophecies never came through. And of course, people like Francis Collins were never held accountable for being a hype master futurist whose prophecies don't come true. That's the universal truth of medicine. You can have all the prophecies you wish, and the more inaccurate you are, no one will really care, and no one will ever hold you responsible. So the other thing I got to say here is that I guess I'm a little concerned that people who are commenting about this paper may not fully understand gene expression profiling. Gene expression profiling relates to levels of transcripts of mRNA that are the expression product of genes. And it's not genes themselves. And it turns out gene expression is a product of two major forces. One, of course, the genes that are there, but also the environment, the entire cellular machinery and the broader cultural environment that those genes find themselves in. So it is entirely possible that through stress, socioeconomics, vulnerability, poverty, um, other huge societal challenges that someone's gene expression for certain genes could change. In fact, some studies suggest that for non-housekeeping genes, the majority of gene expression differences may in fact be due to exogenous environmental stimuli. So I guess, you know, the people who are saying that this is racist because um, there is no genetic basis of race, I mean, I guess the first point I would just sort of ask is, are we all clear here that this is a gene expression profiling study? It's not a genetic study. Just want to clarify that point. The next thing to point out is that there are a number of investigations right now that are looking at somatic genetic mutations. Those are the mutations in tumor types, and they do look at it by race. If There's just a paper last week in the New England Journal of Medicine. If black prostate cancer patients have different mutations on average than Asians and whites, that paper claimed that there were. There are other geneticists who've done even broader panels that do not find that's the case. But again, here we're talking about somatic genetic mutations, which are mutations in the cancer cell, not the germline cell. And again, those mutations, of course, are a product of both genes present at baseline and environmental mutations and damage. So it is possible that groups of people exposed to stressors, to tougher 
crueler working conditions exposed to chemicals um, may have different somatic gene mutations, um, and that may segregate on the basis of race. Um, finally, there's germline genetics, which is the genes that you're born with. And of course, the majority of those are genes you got from a parent, but some of those are sporadic in utero mutations. And I guess different people put it at different numbers, but I've heard numbers as high as 100 per the genome, which is, you know, three times 10 to the power of eight. Okay. So that's just a little background. So I guess the first question I said I would answer. So is this true? Well, I gotta say, I, <laughs> I gotta say, I, 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 I don't think it's true. I mean, I, the reason I don't think it's true is, mm, um, small sample size, select age group. It's not really clear to me, um, you know, how the people are being picked. They're being picked in an asthma clinic, I guess, or they're being picked in, you know, as part of a different project, not, you know, people, not random sample of the population. Uh, I, those are reasons I question the sample. The other reason I think it's probably not true is that, you know, gene expression profiling is sort of a noisy science and that there's variability, small sample size. No one has yet tried to reproduce this. If I were a betting man, you know, if one were to bet in this field in general, sort of pretest probability bets, one would bet that this probably won't reproduce. Um, those are, I think, are, I think the central challenges I have with the data set. I mean, interesting, sure. Will, is it true? I would, if I had to put, if I had poker chips and I had to bet, I'd bet, you know, most of my chips that it's probably not true. It would not reproduce in broader cohorts and over and over again. That's just a simple fact of just how I feel about, you know, this kind of gene expression. I'm not a, it's not my, not my party. Also, I'm not, I'm not the biggest expert in it. I follow it peripherally. I have some long-standing interest in it, the way in which gene expression is used to delineate subgroups. Of course, my favorite, of course, being, we don't have to get into this, but my favorite, of course, being large cell lymphoma. You all know that, you know, the classic papers by Stout and colleagues from, from Nature. Oh, oh, those categories, A, B, C, G, G, C, B, how, how useful they've been over the years. <laughs> how useful they've been. Anyway, so true, my answer, probably not. Not true. I would say no, if I had to bet. Okay, next, useful. I guess I would say a prerequisite to utility, of course, would be being true. Uh, so I guess I would say probably not useful. The author's point that um, racial ethnic self-identification, um, you know, should uh, be something that we seek out, you know, have diverse participants in the randomized trials of Camelstat mesylate. Um, yeah, sure. But I didn't need your paper to know that we ought to have diverse participants in that study. Um, and should we stratify by race ethnicity? That's a big, you know, big question mark. I mean, should it actually be a stratification factor, i.e. that you're actively randomizing equal amounts in those subcategories? Or should it just be a randomization factor where, you know, more than likely you'll minimize the difference in the outcome of interest if it's a null drug and, and that you probably on average would have sort of balance in that, but you're not explicitly stratifying based on it? Um, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know the answer, but I don't believe, I certainly don't believe their study would provide any additional guidance in terms of whether or not this ought to be a stratification factor as they allude to in their discussion. So useful, eh, not really, in my opinion, just so, so not, I would say no truth, no, not truthful. Uh, no, probably not useful. I mean, if I was a betting person, I, I don't like to review these papers on this podcast. I like to review clinical papers, but you know, no, no, those are my answers. Racist. That's the interesting one to me. Is it racist? And I guess the question would be, I mean, um, if somebody did a study that asked whether based on self-identified race, 
people lived in households with more members or lived in smaller quarters and were closer to other family members. I don't think anyone would say that that study is racist. We're trying to understand why in self-identified blacks or Latinos um, who do have a higher rate of COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, perhaps death, you know, disproportionate to their population. If somebody were to study their living environment, whether or not they're in tighter quarters, whether or not they're more likely to do sort of the tough, essential labors of society, I don't think anyone would say that's racist. They would say that's trying to explicate why they're getting this more. That is a valuable scientific question. We want to know why and correct those disparities if they exist. So nobody would call that racist. Um, and if that is the standard, then gene expression profiling, which could just be the downstream sequela of those things, it could just be that, asking that question cannot in and of itself be racist. Because what these people are doing is they're asking, I guess, a very practical question, which is, you know, one way to interpret their question would be, is the reason why the black community having more COVID-19 because of the jobs they do having to be in households where people may be in tighter confines, things like that, those kinds of risk factors? Or is it because of chronic stress, poverty, leading to changes in gene expression, which increase the level at which you have nasal gene expression of this thing to which COVID binds? Those are kind of two distinct hypotheses. They both are concerned with societal inequality. One is just mediated through gene expression. There's nothing wrong or right about that. It's just trying to sort out, is it mediated by the societal things in and of itself? Or do those things put a stress, a toll on the body that changes the body's gene expression? I mean, those are just different things. It's just trying to tease that out. Could trying to answer that question be racist? I mean, I think both acknowledge that there can be profound social inequality. So I guess I would say the answer again would be no. The more I think about it, I guess I cannot come to a understanding of the claim of racism. And again, we have to be very clear what this claim is. The claim isn't that the results they observed are racist. No, the claim is that asking the question itself is racist. And I guess I would say asking the question, could gene expression, which itself is a product of both environment and baseline genetics, vary in marginalized, um, mistreated, uh, discriminated groups? And could that be the mechanism by which SARS-CoV-2 is disproportionately affecting those individuals? I guess I see that prima facie, there could be no possible claim that asking that question is racist, just like nobody would claim that asking whether or not black individuals are socioeconomically disadvantaged or more likely to, uh, to do essential labor or more likely to live in households where they're in cramped confines. Those might be the mechanism by which they're getting SARS-CoV-2, and nobody would say that's racist. So I guess I hate to say that I believe much of the condemnation of this study might simply be just a absolutely not being clear on what gene expression profiling is measuring. Perhaps they believe it's measuring the germline genome. Okay, so that's, I think, the point one. The next point about racism would be, would be you know, is it wrong to measure the somatic genome and look for differences based on self-identified race? And I guess the answer to that question is, well, we find ourselves in a bit of a pickle. There's another article that came out recently. Cancer projects to diversify genetic research receive new grants. Because much cancer research and clinical trials have been based on white populations, effort to explore the ways race and ethnicity influence disease are underway. So this is a project that's called Polyethnic 1000, and it's led by Harold Varmus. You know him well. NIH director, my NCI director former president of MSKCC, Nobel laureate. 
And he says, quote, leaving people out is an equity issue and a knowledge issue. And that's why he proposes sequencing more broader ethnic populations. Some say, quote, we think that there's more to it than just social factors, say Dr. Laura Martello Rooney, one of the grant recipients that who studies pancreatic and colon cancer in African Americans, quote, we think there are underlying molecular and cellular differences that impact incidence as well as treatment. Bishoy Faltas, oncologist at Will Cornell, leading the study on bladder cancer, says conducting genetic research on patients of different ethnic backgrounds was important because the way the patient's immune system responds to cancer and cancer therapies is determined by their genetic makeup. Oh dear, oh dear. Hmm, interesting, interesting, interesting. So, at the same time, these JAMA researchers, by the way, three people of color, two women of color and one man of color, while they are doing the racist gene expression profiling study, there's another initiative that actually seeks to diversify the genetic sequencing of the somatic genome of cancer tumors. Is that racist? And I guess I would say that these authors or the people doing that research certainly don't believe it is racist. And again, even if one were to uncover on average differences between self-identified race, it would not necessarily prove that there is a genetic difference between people when they're born. It only proves that the tumors have different genetic mutations. That could be the product of different environmental exposures, different life stressors. It could also be the product of baseline differences, but it's not necessarily the product of that. And these authors make the convincing case, I think, that we have done a disservice, I think, to minority groups, that we ought to sequence them broadly because we might learn something about their cancers that applies just to them. Do I believe this? Actually, I don't. I'm, not, I'm, in the, I'm one of the people who actually think it is unlikely that we will gain tremendous insights from broad-scale sequencing of common tumor types because I think they are multifactorial and driven by multiple products. I mean, I, I, I debated that at ASCR, you know, in all, in all people, not, not based on race. But, I mean, they, they think otherwise. And I guess at the end of the day, you know, my criticism has to do with whether or not we should be offering these services in the absence of evidence. Uh, but my criticism is not whether or not we ought to research these questions. They are worthy of research. Do I think they'll be successful? I doubt it, but have at it. So there is a tension, I think, in the mind of activists if you're going to say that one cannot look at gene expression differences based on self-identified race because that even asking that question is racist, well, you're going to miss out on a lot of information that may not even be the product of someone's germline genome. If you're going to say that looking at somatic genetic mutations in tumors is racist, if you look at it by on the basis of race, you're going to miss out on potential differences in somatic genomes that may not even be inherited. But what about the hard question, which is, is it wrong to look at potential on average differences between races in the germline genome? Is that wrong? I want to read you some quotes from an article called How Genetics is Changing Our Understanding of Race by David Reich. This is an article that appeared in the New York Times Magazine in 2018. Beginning in 1972, genetic findings began to be incorporated into the argument. That year, geneticist Richard Lewinton, who's just really spectacular, spectacular geneticist, published an important study of variations in the protein types in blood. He grouped them into the traditional quote-unquote races and found that most of the variation in protein types, 85%, could be accounted for within populations and races, and only 15% could be accounted for across them. Therefore, most of the differences were within a quote-unquote race and not between races. In this way, a consensus was established that among human populations, there are no differences large enough to support the concept of quote-unquote biological race. Instead, it was argued race is a social construct, a way of categorizing people that changes over time and across continents. And Dr. Reich 
notes, it is true that race is a social construct. It is also true, as Dr. Lewinton wrote, that human populations are remarkably similar to each other from a genetic point of view. Then he goes on. But over the years, this consensus has morphed, seemingly without questioning, into an orthodoxy. The orthodoxy maintains that the average genetic differences among people grouped according to today's racial terms are so trivial when it comes to any meaningful biological traits that those differences can be ignored. The orthodoxy goes further, holding that we should be anxious about any research into genetic differences among populations. The concern is that such research, no matter how well-intentioned, is located on a slippery slope that can lead itself to the horrible things of the past. He writes, I have deep sympathy for the concern that genetic discoveries could be misused to justify racism, but as a geneticist, I also know that it is simply no longer possible to ignore average genetic differences among races. Groundbreaking advances in sequencing have been made over the last two decades. These sequences enable us to measure with exquisite accuracy what fraction of an individual's genetic ancestry traces back to, say, West Africa 500 years ago, before the mixing of the Americas of the West African and European gene pools that were almost completely isolated for the last 70,000 years. With the help of these tools, we are learning that while race may be a social construct, differences in genetic ancestry that happen to correlate to many of today's racial constructs are real. Recent genetic studies have demonstrated differences across populations, not just in the genetic determinants of simple traits such as skin color, but also in more complex traits such as bodily dimensions and susceptibility to diseases. For example, we now know that genetic factors help explain why Northern Europeans are taller on average than Southern Europeans, why multiple sclerosis is more common in European Americans than African Americans, and why the reverse is true for end-stage kidney disease. I don't want to get into too much, but I'm not sure I subscribe to all of those particular things he notes, but, you know... I'll let him continue. I am worried that well-meaning people who deny the possibility of substantial biological differences among human populations are digging themselves into an indefensible position, one that will not survive the onslaught of science. I'm also worried that whatever discoveries are made, and we truly have no idea what they will be, will be cited as, quote, scientific proof that racist prejudices and agendas have been correct all along, and those well-meaning people will not understand the science well enough to push back against these claims. And that is why it is important, even urgent, that we develop a candid and scientifically up-to-date way of discussing such differences instead of sticking our heads in the sand and being caught unprepared when they are found. Self-identified African-Americans turn out to derive on average about 80% of their genetic ancestry from enslaved Africans brought to America between the 16th and 19th century. My colleagues and I searched in 1600 African-Americans with prostate cancer for locations in the genome where the fraction of genes contributed by West African ancestors was larger than was elsewhere in the genome. In 2006, we found exactly what we were looking for, a location in the genome with about 2.8% more African ancestry than average. We looked in more detail. We found this region contained at least seven independent risk factors for prostate cancer, all more common in West Africans. Our findings could fully account for the higher rate of prostate cancer in African-Americans and European-Americans. I'm not going to go on and on. Um, I think it's a very interesting article. It's worth considering. And I guess, you know, there are two different claims being made here. One is the claim that will we find something useful and actionable, true and useful, from looking at genetic, and here we're talking about germline, not somatic, because I think that's that's an easier argument to make, that gene expression and somatic really are not talking just solely about one's birth, but rather one's life. Um, but is it okay to look at the germline? And I guess I would say two things can be true. One, I myself, as sort of a genetic skepticist, can be skeptical that one will ever learn any real differences between self-identified races or I might be a believer that one might learn very little about differences between people that lend itself to therapies, just like we've learned very little about how to dose Coumadin and how to dose antihypertensives and which one to give which person. We've learned very little about that from all the efforts in the Human Genome Project. That's the kind of view I fall. I think David Reich falls in the other category. He thinks we might learn something. So I think that's the first line. Like, are we? Is it actually going to be fruitful? I would say probably not. If I had to bet, probably not. Just like this paper, not true, not useful. 
The next question, though, is, is even asking the question racist? And here, this is where I think I do have to agree with David Reich. It I, I just think it cannot be racist to ask the question because as much as we think we know the answer, Dr. Reich thinks he might find something of interest, and I think he probably won't. The only way to know that for sure is to perform the scientific inquiry. And none of this is to say that there aren't profound inequalities in society. There are. That there isn't racism. There is. That there isn't differences in working circumstances. There are. That it that the world is fair. It's not. It's unfair. That's why I am a supporter of efforts to diversify educational pools, educational classes, to, to try to turn the momentum around from the impetus, the, the, the painful stain of, on this nation of slavery, um, I think that all those things are true, that poorer minority populations are victimized. And compared to richer populations, I think poorer white populations are also victimized to some degree as well. I mean, all of these things are true. These injustices do exist. However, the question is, is it racist in and of itself to ask if there are on average differences between groups of people based on self-identified race. And, you know, I read a lot of comments and there's some cheeky comments where somebody said, you know, self-identified race, it's social construct, it's no more than zodiac sign. And somebody wrote back, well, you know, if, um, if, 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 if two Indians uh, are, are have a baby and, and the doctor gives them a white baby, um, they're going to have a few questions. And if you tell them, you know, race is just a, a, a social social construct, they're going to say, where's my, where's my baby? Where's my baby? That's what they don't imagine. They'd say, because, you know, there are some genes that do control uh, complexion, uh, skin color. That's why I have the same skin color as, as my parents. Um, you know, there are those genes. Um, doesn't mean that the category of race is this, this thing that exists, you know, in a sort of, you know, if you were to sequence people broadly and put it through sort of a a, a, a program that, the, that recapitulates phylogeny, you're very unlikely to get the sort of racial categories that we think of. That's absolutely true, suggesting that it's much more social than it is genetic, at least insofar as those algorithms actually are valid and useful. Um, but it is something that, that, that exists. It is something that defines our lives, and somatic genetic mutations are also a product of our lives, and gene expression is a product of our life. So I don't think that that would be unreasonable. And germline genes may have some on average differences. Doesn't mean any group of people is better. Doesn't mean any group is worse. Just means there might be some on average differences. Some of those, as Dr. Reich believes, will be actionable and intervenable and useful to know. I tend to think that they won't be actionable or intervenable or useful to know. But I certainly don't think that people who ask these questions should be maligned and be called racist. I mean, I think his analogy that that would be akin to putting your head in the sand and not wanting to know things about the genome, I think is apt. So, you know, so many tools in life can be misused. A scalpel can save a life and it can be used to kill somebody. Um, you know, so many tools can be misused and genetics is a tool with great potential for misuse. No doubt about it. But if you call someone a killer every time they wield a scalpel, you might miss the fact that some people are surgeons and they're trying to save lives. And these three people who wrote this paper, their names are Supinda Bunyavanich, Chantal Grant, and Alfin Vicencio. I believe they are good people who are well-meaning, and I believe they do understand what gene expression profiling is, and that's why I believe the last sentence of their paper says, quote, many additional factors are likely, 
quote, especially because gene expression and race ethnicity reflect multiple social, environmental, and geographic factors. So I think they are cognizant of what they're finding and what the implication is. I think they are well-intentioned. I think they're trying to use the scalpel as a surgeon and not Jack the Ripper. Um, and the last point I'll make is the, the advocates cannot have two things. One, we cannot say that it is insufficient. You've been sequencing white people all this time. That's insufficient. You have to sequence more black and Latin and Asian people. Add some diversity. You'll say why. You can't have two things. One, there's nothing different you will learn about sequencing those black, Latin, and Asian people. You're going to learn exactly the same thing as you'll know from the white people because there's absolutely no on average differences between races. There's no differences at all. You're not going to learn anything at all. In which case, well, then we don't have to sequence any diverse people. We can just sequence a few more white people. We'll get the same information. I don't think that's true. We don't know. You can't have that. And it is always wrong to look for any on average differences between races. There's a, a fundamental inconsistency there. It cannot both be always wrong to look for on average differences between races on the basis of genetics or gene expression, and we ought to have more sequencing of broader populations. If you believe we ought to have more sequencing of broader populations, you believe there's some information that is contained in that sequencing that may on average be different than white populations, and that's why you want to do it. You can't have both things. You cannot have both. That is a contradiction. So one or the other. And I believe the right answer is that there might be something we don't know that you will learn you ought to sequence broad populations. Boom. That's easy. And I believe that probably there are very few, if any, on average differences between populations that are meaningful. However, somebody who wants to look for those things is not in and of themselves racist. They may be well-intentioned and they may even though there are haters like me who think they won't succeed, they may succeed and someday have a treatment that we will all be like, well, thanks for doing that anyway. Even though we called you racist, we appreciate the new pill that's going to help a lot of people. I mean, we might feel that way. So I don't know. So, I mean, I think, so those are my thoughts on this paper. True? Nah, probably not. Useful? I doubt it. Racist? Nah, I don't think so. Last point. There is something wrong with Twitter, my friends. There's something seriously wrong. We can't just keep moving from, you know, med bikini. Then we got to rip Norman Wang down and tear up his, tear up his EP fellowship director certificate. You Norman Wang, tear up his white paper, racist paper. Um, you know, we, we got Norman Wang, we knock him down. Then we move on. We move on. Who's who's next? Santa Clara, those Stanford people. You know they're in the, they're in, they're obviously John Yonides is a sleeper agent for the right. He you know he's he's been in the side of the right. He waited fifty some years to pop, pop out and then say IFR is too low. I knew it. Knew he was just wait biding his time to say that sleeper agent. Um, you know we can't just go from one outrage to the next to the next one, which is you know we're all bored. We're at home. We're twiddling our thumbs. And we see Supinda Boon. Yavanich with her racial ethnic variation and gene expression profiling. Who does she think she is? Boom, we got her now. This is not a this is not a way to conduct to conduct academics and society. This is not a way. To just move from one outrage to the next outrage with, you know, a question mark about, you know, what percent of people are fully reading the paper, understanding the paper, know what gene expression profiling even means. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. It's easy to say people are racist or sexist or bigoted. It's a lot harder to really consider what they're saying and say, you know, is it possible that we disagree within normal limits? If we start calling everybody racist who's looking at gene expression profiling of some gobbledygook 
nasal receptor. Um, what what word are we going to save for, you know, the people who have swastika tattoos? I mean, what what word is left for them? I mean, we have to, I think, have some perspective in, with which we use these words. There are people who harbor racist thoughts. That racism, what does that mean? It means that they believe that some of us are inferior simply by the color of our skin or where our families come from. Um, that's a poison. Uh, it's a poison that I fear will get worse because right now we have COVID policies that are further exacerbating wealth inequalities. And when you when you bleed people like that, when you punish people like that, you foment xenophobia. And we're going to get something that's that's a topic for future future podcasts. We're going to get something that we may never have seen before, something horrible. Um, but anyway, uh, that's that's you know those that's why we we call some things racist. Um, sexist. They're horrible things. Um, does this paper, does Supinda deserve that? I mean, you know, an R01 funded researcher probably trying her best to contribute something to the knowledge. You know, she's not doing the surgosphere trash paper. I mean, you know, for all the criticism of her paper that I personally have, I mean, they certainly did do this work. They certainly found it. I don't think they fabricated anything. I mean, this is real. They're trying to help. They're well-intentioned. This is gene expression profiling. It's a product of both germline genetics and, 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 and life. And if we're going to call them racist, then I think, you know, we have some serious soul searching to do. Um, so my advice is a couple things for people listening to this podcast. We got to stop this mob, people. There are many people who call me and uh, say that they are concerned about mob behavior. And it's easy to say that to me, to email me, to DM me, to tell me that. Um, but we all have to get together here and torpedo the mob. And what do I mean by that? When we see people behaving inappropriately towards these authors of this paper, which I don't think is racist, um, we have to say that. It's not racist. It's probably not racist. It's a mistake to call it racism. You should be more cautious about using a loaded and negative term to describe people who are really doing, um, you know, work they think is is good. I said this on, on Zubin's show. Um, you know, if the first author of Med Bikini committed suicide, would you feel good about yourself for being the 240th person to, 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 to go in his, in his comments and tell some 20-year-old kid who's like a first-year medical student that, you know, he's a misogynist and a sexist and a, and a, and a monster and all sorts of things that they called him? I mean, would you feel good about himself if you find that he kills himself? If these authors killed themselves, would anyone feel would anyone feel proud that they they call the paper racist on Twitter? Um, would you feel a little ashamed that you called him racist on Twitter? I mean, they probably are different than me. I mean, this is something I talked about on Zubin's show, which is some of us who have gradually come more and more in the limelight, more and more Twitter followers, more and more podcast listeners, we have built our armor up slowly. You know, I, I put my armor on one piece at a time and, you know, people want to call me things on the internet. It doesn't bother me. At this point, the negative sentiment just makes me stronger. I eat it up. I get, I get power, power from your negativity. No, but I mean, I built my armor. I can take it. These people... Have they been in the arena like this before? Have they been used to getting people insulting them, criticizing them, writing bullshit articles about them, creating fake Twitter accounts about them? No, they're not used to that. Now they're being called racist 1,000-fold. Um, you know, someday somebody might do something drastic. Somebody, one of these people who's the victim of mob activity, might kill themselves. The irony, of course, is that a mob 
who feels offended on behalf of no individual, but a collective. They feel that maybe perhaps black people are being mistreated by this paper or Indian people or women or, or some minority group is being mistreated by the paper. The, 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 they feel that that's the cause that justifies the mob violence. In response to a group of people feeling mistreated, they single out individuals and crucify those individuals. So one of these days, one of these authors will kill themselves. I mean, simply, probably statistically a matter of time before somebody in the pressure cooker, that world that we're living in, might, you know, take 1,000 comments that they're racist and, and do something drastic. How will people feel? I think they should feel super ashamed that, you know, without maybe even understanding what gene expression profiling is, they thought it was just acceptable to, to smear their colleagues who probably are not racist. And I don't think even ask, I don't think asking the question is racist. I mean, I don't see that. I see that there are things in the world that are racist. And we have to do something about those things. But in an effort to solve those things, not everything must be racist. Some things are just people doing their best in a world that is screwed up for a few hundred years, thousands of years, longer since the dawn of humanity. The color of someone's skin has always meant something. I know that as somebody who's not on the lighter side of the spectrum. Someone who, when you go to Sherwin-William and you look at the book, you got to go to the, the bottom right to find my color in that book. So I know, world's not fair in that way, but we can't inappropriately use these terms to describe people who are not ill-motivated and, in fact, are not actually looking at something that does anything that people think it does. It's gene expression. It's not genetics. They're not saying race is a biological construct. That mantra... If you hang on to that mantra, you might miss the fact that there may be on some average differences, certainly at the somatic level, potentially at the, at the germline level that are actionable. I don't think there are, but other people do. But I certainly don't want to get in the way of their laboratory science and curtail what they might want to investigate. So again, my feelings here are, are sort of really mixed. Um, I'm not a geneticist. There's a reason I didn't pursue genetics. I don't think it's going to yield the magic that we think it will. I think thinking genetics is going to be the answer, especially with the way which, which we can understand the genome, would be like the, the people in, in the allegory of the cave, in Plato's cave, looking at the shadows on the wall, thinking they understand the world. Because it's a lot more complex than the shadows, the sequences of the base pairs, of course. Anyway, that's a, that's a two-stepper. But, so I, I don't think it is, but I think that people who want to do their best to understand the world in that way can't just be labeled and dismissed as racist and I think the most deadly thing is the mob. I mean, the mob is just sort of this, this, this entity where individuals shirk their responsibility and they all throw stones at these people. And we've seen it over and over again. Um, one of these people someday may do something drastic. Um, will you be able to live with yourself based on what you've said? Um, that's, that's, that's what I, I wonder. So on that positive note, we're going to turn to two things. Imaging. Doctors Becker and Wu, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, prostate cancer imaging. What could be more exciting? But then the best for last, Tom Newman, Michael Cohn, evidence-based diagnosis. This is a tour de force discussion of clinical epidemiology. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Anton Becker and Dr. Sung Min Wu. 
Doctors Becker and Wu are from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where they are fellows in oncologic imaging. And they're here to talk about new papers in oncologic imaging. So thank you so much, Dr. Becker and Dr. Wu, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, Dr. Becker, you and I have corresponded a little bit before. Uh, one of the things that um, we have talked about is that you, in fact, listened to one of the first editions of the audiobook of Malignant. Is that right? That's correct. And during this now withdrawn audiobook, there was one chapter in particular that was a little bit lax with the editing. Is that is that an accurate summary of that chapter? Uh, my favorite chapter. Your favorite chapter. <laughs> my favorite chapter. <laughs> it's the chapter that brought down my ranking and on the uh, Audible store. So why don't you tell listeners, what did you have to listen to in this chapter? So, so the, the, the first thing I noted was that certain things were like repeated uh, a, a few times in the beginning. <laughs> And uh, after that, I got to hear several times the uh, wonderful um, sound effects of uh, you, I think, oiling your vocal cords with some water. <laughs> so I was guzzling a lot of water. Yeah, but so so it actually made me realize, and I think I think I tweeted you about this. Yeah. Uh, actually, made made me realize because the rest of the book seemed so effortless. It made me realize like how much work actually went into reading this. Uh, but uh, yeah, so yeah, it's a lot of repeating, a lot of repeating yourself, um, and uh, and uh, luckily that was all clipped out of the other chapters. But now, thankfully, the critics have spoken. See, you were a kind person; you didn't hold it against our rating. But that wasn't true for many people who took it out on us on those on those star reviews and have given us one star for quality of production. But we went back and we redid that chapter and we fixed it and we put it back up. So it should be good for new listeners. That's okay, you know, you know, if it, if it's like five stars all the way that's also suspicious so you want to have like one or two one star reviews that's true you're right it, it does look suspicious if it's if it's too good well it's a pleasure to have you and dr Wu here together um and uh why don't we just jump right in and start talking about what we want to talk about which are these you know really interesting papers um in prostate cancer imaging so a couple of them are comparing mri directed biopsy of the prostate for people in whom the PSA is elevated and you want to figure out if they have or likely where they have and what Gleason they have prostate cancer. Um, and the other um, is a study of pro-PSMA, which is a novel type of PET scan that's used to identify people with high-risk prostate cancer who have occult by other detected methods, but it's low-volume metastatic disease. So why don't we jump in and start talking about the pro-PSMA study. So this appeared in the Lancet Oncology in 2020, and it's called Prostate-Specific Membrane Antigen PET-CT in Patients with High-Risk Prostate Cancer Before Curative Intense Surgery or Radiotherapy, the Pro-PSMA Scan, a Prospective Randomized Multicenter Study. So why don't I kick this out to Dr. Wu? Why don't you tell me, you know, what what is what is this scan? Uh, I'm familiar with, P, uh, with PET scans where you radio-label glucose. But what are they radio labeling in this scan, and 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 what is it? What is it telling me? So, like you mentioned, the most commonly known you know, pet tracer is FDG, which is labeling glucose. Okay. But in this case, this uh, I'd say relatively novel because this has been around for a while. Uh, PSMA PET is a, a PSMA targeted uh, tracer, and PSMA stands for prostate specific membrane antigen. It's a transfer membrane uh, protein that is highly expressed on prostate cancer cells. So technically. Uh, it's 
quite prostate specific, although if you actually look in detail, it's not specific to prostate cancer cells. So it's it's very good at detecting prostate cancer and its metastatic disease sites, and there's been lots of evidence uh, based on retrospective studies and small-scale prospective studies. But um, this pro-PSME is uh, quite uh, quite one of a kind where it's the first to actually do this in a randomized setting across multiple centers. I see. Um, so tell me, if I took somebody who did not have prostate cancer, a healthy young person, and I injected them with um, gallium-labeled PSMA and put them in a PET scanner, um, is the prostate going to light up? I mean, I mean, the 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 prostate is gonna gonna light up a little bit, but I mean, we now know multiple benign and malignant uh, conditions that are have, have nothing to do with the prostate at all. Sometimes, and they can also uh, take a prostate. Like uh, we've we've published a few of those cases from Memorial, uh, like uh, cholangiocarcinoma or uh, benign hemangiomas can take up, right? You know, any other come to mind? And also, uh, it's basically expressed in all sorts of uh, tumor-related vascularity. Right, so gliomas, right. even renal cell carcinomas, uh, uh, quite uh, uptake this PSME very well, too. I see. So, I see. So it is not uh, as prostate-specific as I thought, but, but, the, but the healthy prostate does take it up to some degree. That's true. That is true, but it's only to some degree, and it definitely the, the expression of PSMA in the molecular background and also at the level of the tracer uptake on PET-CT is, is, uh, is greater with increasing um, glycine grades and tumor size. So definitely you'll see it more in a very uh, uh, more significant cancer in the prostate. I see. And will you also see on a PSMA PET scan, just like with a FDG glucose PET, that the radio tracer is being excreted through the ureters and the bladder, and so that will also uh, light up on the scan? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that kind of limits sometimes the sensitivity. Uh, for example, if you're looking for recurrence uh, right along the bladder neck uh, margin, yeah, sometimes that can be kind of tricky. Sort of, uh, and and it also should be mentioned that I think uh, what's the percentage? About three percent of prostate cancers are actually PSMA negative, five percent somewhere in that range. I see. Yeah, there are some. Um, yeah. So some prostate cancers actually are don't take up any PSMA at all. I, and I do want to clarify yeah, that. Yeah. It, we're talking about PSMA, but it depends on what you label it. It's in the gallium. Uh, labeled PSMA, you are correct about it. it's excreted urine, but there are some that are, yeah, that are not excreted urine, so some of the novel tracers, so I just want to clarify that. Oh, I see. I see. So this study used gallium labeled, but you could label it with something else that is excreted a different way. Yes. Interesting. And I guess one of the things that I was sort of believe, no, maybe not believe, maybe, I, I, I once read, and I am I'm, now I'm a little bit fuzzy about where my reference was, which was, for instance, when you're using um, FDG-labeled glucose for, let's say, GE junction cancer, one of the things that's difficult is for that PET scan to tell you something about a lymph node that's in very close proximity to the primary cancer for the simple reason that the uptake of the primary cancer is so exquisitely FDG-avid that it sometimes even sort of shines so bright that it's very difficult to see a small lymph node adjacent to it. Um, it, it one, is that even true? And two, um, is, is that sort of what you're talking about when you're referring to sort of um, avidity at, uh, at the black? Neck. So, I mean, uh, I, I think you're referring to the blooming effect. Yeah. Do you think? That's yeah, 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 that's a blooming, blooming yeah. artifact. Yeah, from the blooming artifact. So it's it's uh, it, the tracer. It just blooms, blooms. So it uh, uh, it hampers 
Yeah. So, so for example, if you're, if it's a, it's a technical artifact when there's like so much, um, so much, um, radioactive signal, basically so much, so many, uh, what would it be? An, uh, annihilations, uh, and so many, um, gamma rays from one source that the, the reconstruction algorithm actually thinks that the, um, radiation originates from outside of that area where it actually originates. So it's, mm. it's, it's a technical artifact. And that is the reason, for example, why um, we would still use a uh, MRI for lo uh, local staging of prostate cancer because it's at the margin of the prostate. You could imagine if it just very avidly takes up the PSMA, then you might overestimate the, the amount of extraprostatic extension that, that happens. I so. see. Yes. Okay. So that's a that's a good point. Okay, so let's let's talk about this PSMA scan. So, um, you know, this is something that I think uh, there are a lot of people who are instantly true believers the moment you see one of these scans because it lights up um, very dramatically and you can see little bits of prostate cancer in all sorts of places that you otherwise would not see by conventional imaging. Is that fair to say? Um, I believe so, sure. yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> You compare to bone scan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bone scan is uh, uh, a scan I don't like looking at. Let put, let me put it that way. <laughs> um, uh, and in comparison, PSMA PET CT lights up quite well. Yeah, that's right. And what about what if I took somebody with prostate cancer and just did a PET CT? What is PSMA gonna look? It, it, um, I mean, it wasn't. You mean like FDG glucose PET? Yeah. So, so uh, usually um, it depends kind of on the tumor stage. Uh, we sometimes actually do FDG PET CT for prostate cancer, but that's usually late stage. Yes, and it's a sign of cancer dedifferentiation. So once it dedifferentiates into a undifferentiated cancer, then then it will start uh, taking up FDG. Yeah. Right. Okay. So. Um, that's that's a that's a good background. So let's jump into this study. So this is a. Um, this is a sort of interesting study where um, they randomly assign people into two groups. Um, one group, you get the conventional imaging, which is a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis and a bone scan. Um, notably, conventional imaging group did not receive MRI of the pelvis, which is very common, which we'll talk about. In the experimental group, in addition to that conventional imaging, you also receive the PSMA PET CT. And then the question was, what and then, of course, there was a crossover phase um, where patients who did not receive PSMA were allowed to receive PSMA scans. Um, and the analysis was really looking at the AUC, which is uh, a measure of discrimination. Um, and it's really asking, you know, what are the different test characteristics of this uh, in terms of sensitivity and specificity to find um, pelvic nodal or distant metastatic disease. But we should also give the listeners a bit of information that pelvic nodal disease, um, pelvic nodal disease or N1 disease in prostate cancer is considered M1 disease or metastatic disease. Um, so uh, is that a fair summary of, of this study? Yeah. Yeah. I, so. yeah. yeah, I agree. What would you, what would you add? That's a big picture uh, summary. Okay. I agree. I don't think, yeah. Okay, fair enough. And the people they're putting in this study, who are the people? It's not just anybody um, with prostate cancer. It's a certain population of people with prostate cancer. So why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about that population, if that makes sense to you? I mean, so basically they're trying to test the diagnostic performance for assessing nodal and distant metastases. So they want a relatively high prevalence of patients with those diseases. I think that's why they included patients with high-risk prostate cancer. But they're 
criteria was a PSA of 20 or higher. Yeah. ISUP grades of uh, three to five. That means it's a gleason grade of a four plus three or higher. Um, and clinical studies of P3 and higher. So basically, these are patients at high risk of having uh, metastatic disease. That's right. Um, and, and, um, but in your practice, I mean, isn't it the case that, um, uh, that this imaging would probably necessarily drift a little bit towards people who don't uh, have as high risk uh, disease. Uh, do you think that that's that's the likely scenario in in clinical practice? I would say, yeah, yeah. Well, there's also some uh, some approval related issues because um, you think about it in the United States right now, PSA and PET CT is not FDA approved. It's basically used in the research setting with the IRB um, in, with, uh, pro- based on protocols. Yes. So, institution and what kind of IRA protocol you have uh, in your institution. Whereas, whereas I think it's a little bit different in the, the in the Europe setting where it's it's uh, it's more more prevalently used. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. in Switzerland where I did my residency, the uh, it's, it's clinically approved. I see. Well, that may change in the states. Okay, so um, you know, what do you think the? I mean, so let's run through the results here. Um, uh, it, it looked it looked like it is detecting smaller bits of disease. That's my takeaway. How would you put it, Doctor Wu? Yeah, so definitely PSA PET CT is detecting more uh, more lesions, both at the nodal and at the distant, uh, stratified to both uh, both uh, areas. Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, what what I what I found. Uh, of course, most interesting is the uh, which which comes later, which you're probably going to get into, uh, is the change in management. Yes. Because obviously, yes. if you have if you already have a huge, uh, say, pelvic and uh, spine bone met, then it's not going to matter much if you find a tiny uh, metastasis in the in, in, in the rib, right? Whereas uh, if you have no mets, uh, otherwise, but then you find the pelvic met or the, the or the rib met, then then it does make a big difference, right? Ah, oh, well, that's what I want to push you Survive on. Survive by safety. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Say, say, finish your thought. What were you saying, Dr. Wu? Oh, I was just adding that I said in, uh, more sites, but in more, in more patients and in more sites would be a more precise term if I summarize together with yeah. uh, uh, Anton's statement there. Yes. And, and, and they do report that there was a management change. And it seems to me like the biggest management change was there was somebody who they were thinking about definitive local therapy, be it RT or surgery, and they got the result of the pet of the PSMA pet, and they said, you know what, this is a palliative patient only. We're not going to pursue local therapy. Is that right? Yeah, that's 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 kind of the statement I triple underlined and and kind of marked because this for me this is kind of the the, the core statement of the paper yes. uh, is is like it I mean they they give a number twenty percent uh, twenty patients fourteen percent uh, now you're saying well it's maybe uh, the selection is a bit stringent whatever so the 10 percent or even a bit less but even even that number is still if you think about prostate being a very prevalent disease even if it's even if it was five percent of patients in the end in the real world setting that would still be a huge number of patients that could uh, avoid uh, surgery yeah that's what i'm going to push you on that a little bit more but let me go first to dr wu has several okay. classes of points he wants to raise so let's go through your points dr wu and then i'm going to then i'm going to give you um a little bit of what i think is in, most interesting about that change of management Okay, so I, I just wanted to state that I think it's a very well-designed study. It was well-performed, a collaboration between the Australian groups. But these are just 
points that I want to raise um, just critical analyze. So I just would break it down into three points. Uh, first of all, the reference standard. I'm gonna, I want to go into little detail about the hard and soft criteria. Um, the level of the analysis here, it was done as a per patient level, uh, not as a per lesion level analysis. And the last would be some issues related to the management change um, and how to interpret that. Okay. So expand on those three. So tell me, tell me what's the reference standard issue? So, I mean, the uh, investigators defined, you know, passes with the hard and soft criteria. And it says that the hard criteria were either it's path proven as having prostate cancer cells or it's a sclerotic change in uh, one of the bone lesions. And these are, these are pretty well-defined criteria that uh, many people would agree with. But the thing is, when you look at the details and go into the supplements um, and uh, I look at how many of the patients actually received the hard criteria, it's, uh, it's fairly low. So only 20 23% of the patients with metastases were defined by the hard criteria. Mm. And when you look at the hard criteria, I just want to go into detail about the pelvic node dissection. If you went to the supplementary materials, um, not these these uh, pelvic node dissections weren't pre-planned uh, according to a template. It was majorly based based on a surgeon's discretion, and even like an incidental node in the periprostatic fat or a targeted biopsy of a suspicious node, these were counted as uh, one of the hard criteria. So this is very different from what you would expect in a planned uh, template-based pelvic node dissection. I bring this up because um, if I reference a, what, a meta-analysis by uh, Pereira and European Urology, where they looked at studies that only use pre-planned extended lymph node dissections, the performance values are much lower than this. It, it turns out to be around 70% sensitivity as to what is shown here. It's about 90% um, sensitivity. So it, it's, it's, it could be that it's a little bit... Um, overestimated in terms of the sensitivity. Mm, I see. Um, let me ask you, so explain that to me. Why do you think it would be overestimated? So basically, if you're not going to dissect all the nodes in the pelvis yes. and only target the ones that are suspicious based yes. on the surface discretion, you're going to have a likelihood of actually harvesting a node that is positive and uh, you don't know about the rest of the nodes. You don't know what you missed. Basically. Yeah, you don't want, know what you missed because um, you know PSA may pets not going to show all the all the nodes of metastases. Gotcha. So the sensitivity would be, in truth, be lower than what is shown in the study. Yeah. I see. I see. Uh, I see what you're saying. You're saying that um, you're saying that uh, had the surgeon removed all of the nodes, we would more nodes. We would be able to better note nodes that had some prostate cancer in it that PSMA did not see, and that can only lower sensitivity. Fair to say. That that is true. I see yeah. what your point is. Your point is they didn't remove as we didn't remove all the nodes, and if you remove more nodes, you might find that you missed things. Gotcha. Understand. Okay. So that's a that's a good point about sensitivity, but um. But unpack for me that the soft, I mean, I guess one of the questions about the soft criteria is, um, do you believe that um, it's possible that some of the things that count under the soft criteria do not constitute metastatic deposition of cancer? Yes, that's, uh, that's exactly what I was going to raise, uh, uh, talk about regarding the soft uh, criteria. Um, some of the criteria are a bit ambiguous. Some are subjective. And some actually bait and inflate towards uh, the, the PSMA uh, as opposed to conventional imaging. Mm -hmm. um, because if you look at 
I'm just going to go by the numbers that are in the paper. So the first soft criteria was typical appearance of a multifocal metastatic disease. Um, I looked at the supplementary materials, didn't really go into more detail about what that meant. I'm assuming it means that the typical location, sites, um, distribution of the metastatic disease um, that is typical for prostate cancer. Yes. That's a bit ambiguous. Yes, that's ambiguous. Yes. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, see your, I see your point here, which is that there are definitely some people who are identified as having distant disease that, you know, we don't have the tissue in our hand. And we don't have radiographic findings that are slam dunk proof they have metastatic disease. Fair to say? Uh, yes, I agree. And but this is this is like I, I guess at the pragmatic level to think I about was, it. I was I was just gonna say. I mean, I feel like I mean they they need to have at least three soft uh, criteria, right? And I I felt like when I read them, sure you can you can kind of criticize them or you can discuss them, but I felt like they were a pretty good pragmatic approach and mm -hmm. kind of reflect of what's done in clinics. Like if, if right, you see right. a, a vague bone lesion and then they undergo androgen deprivation therapy, it becomes sclerotic, then you're like, okay, it wasn't met. Like, like it's, it's sure it might, it might conflate your numbers a little bit, but in the end, it seemed kind of, yeah, yeah I mean, reasonable in, to me. In the pragmatic uh, perspective, it's, this is, uh, this is what you can do. You can't go for everything, you know, path pathology wise, because that would be exactly. unethical and, and that's why so many of the studies that actually look at the performance of, you know, bone metastasis or no metastasis in, uh, for these imaging studies, it's basically done on this. And it's more common term used for this is the best value comparator. Yes, right. And I think that that's probably, yeah, I, I recognize it now. I see the challenge, but I, I do think that the challenge is like you're, you, even, if, even if you could biopsy all the lesions, you can't biopsy all the lesions for the simple fact that, um, uh, you can't put a needle in all those places. I mean, very likely. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's the same. And if you if you say, okay, we only accept histology at the reference standard, automatically you're going to bias your population. The other way. Yeah. Very widely population. Okay. Now take me to the second reason. The second reason on your list. So the second issue that I brought up was it was done at a per patient level of analysis. Now, I mean, obviously you're treated patients, so that is a, uh, that is a good approach. But once, when we get into detail about metastatic disease and, you know, you really want to know about each site and number, uh, it's good to go into the per lesion level analysis. I mean, just, uh, it would have been better if they also did like uh, ad hoc analysis at that level. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I see what you're saying. That, that, that's, a, that's a fair point. Okay, now, yeah. I would have yeah. been very, very, very good if they had. Now let's talk about the third point, the management change. So regarding the management change, um, first of all, because so many patients crossed over, there's no way of uh, seeing how this actually boils down to what, what kind of outcomes uh, or what kind of effect it has at the end. Yes. And the that, second is that yeah. these are very hypothetical management changes. Yes. We, we don't know what, uh, what, what the kind of result in any uh, better outcomes or not. Can I just give you an example? Yeah, go ahead. So, for example, if you see a PSMA pet added node and you decide to do a, a dissection that you were initially not going to go, not going to do, we don't know that it's just dissecting that node or doing no dissection would be better at cancer control yes. because there still might be some disease you might be missing. And the other way around, too, you know, just because you don't see something and you omit a node dissection, you're not sure of how that's going to affect the cancer control, although you would decrease the morbidity related to 
no dissection. Yes. Same with radiation field and dosage too. Yes. And that was what I wanted to get into a little bit, which was I, I was saying that like, you know, I, I mean, the, the, the paper was convincing me, albeit with the limitations that have been noted, but it was convincing me that this is a scan that is going to have more things light up that may and probably are prostate cancer in a patient who has a high risk prostate cancer. You know, it's, um, you know, it, it probably does represent some metastatic deposits. But the question I had was, and it may even lead to management changes. There may be patients who were headed for radiotherapy whom the doctor said, you know what, they've got a couple of spots on a rib or the spine. Maybe they don't need local therapy. But then I tried to put it in perspective with the other recent study that came out recently, which is Stampede, the radiotherapy to the primary tumor for newly diagnosed metastatic disease. Disease. So it's a very interesting randomized trial that came out about a couple years ago, but this was a randomized trial of patients who had metastatic disease at diagnosis, um, and they were randomized to radiotherapy of the local tumor or not. And, you know, that's always a very controversial space in medicine, which is when the horse has left the barn, is there still a benefit to treat the primary as you otherwise would? And we saw recently with breast cancer, a couple of studies at ASCO this year, um, that there is no benefit to treating the primary tumor in breast cancer when the horse has left the barn. Um, we saw with Carmina in renal cancer that the benefit that may have once existed is severely diminuted or no longer exists in the era of novel TKI drugs. In Stampede, prostate cancer, they had a very provocative finding, which was for people with low-volume metastatic disease um, who uh, had low volume by Stampede criteria, there appeared to be an overall survival benefit of radiotherapy to the local organ. And that was evident in um, pain A of figure three, which was um, the interaction coefficient, which is extremely significant, 0 0.0098, and confidence intervals for the two low versus high burden that really are just on opposite sides of one. Um, anyway, the reason I say this is that I guess one of the questions I had was that potentially you're going to find some disease that makes you reluctant to take someone to surgery for local therapy or radiotherapy for local therapy because you have deemed them metastatic, but that might be a person who actually nonetheless would have had a survival benefit from said local therapy. And conversely, the point that you're making, which is you may identify nodal disease in a place you can reach and you may go and scrape it out, but that person might not live any longer because they're not going to die of that nodal uh, failure. They're going to die of distant failure in the future. And, and that to me is, I think, the crux of the issue, which is, um, while it is plausible that, you know, this imaging will enhance outcomes, it's even potentially possible it will erode outcomes. And one would imagine, you know, we could talk about like a theoretical study where we would do it, where we'd randomize people to, you know, usual screening versus usual screening plus this. And it wouldn't just be change in management as the endpoint. It would be like all cause mortality. Um, the authors of this study, they do not believe that that study is necessary, and 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 I think that they are reluctant to accept that as the um, yardstick by which imaging should be judged, and they say so in their discussion. But I think it's actually quite provocative. I mean, I think the sample size of a study like that is going to be around, you know, 3K per arm. It's going to be massive because, you know, you need to get um, an OS difference driven by the change in management, which, you know, as Anton was pointing out, could be in real world settings as low as like 10%, maybe 15%. But that 10, 15% change in management has to translate into a quality of life for OS benefit, which is really kind of a tall order. So you're going to need a tremendous sample size, I would imagine. Um, so that was the thought I had when I read it. Um, let me let me just let me see what what thoughts come to your mind, just bounce off of that kind of articulation of it. 
uh, it's kind of funny when when we both read this paper and we we uh, we uh, we kind of looked at this and, and I was I was selling something like uh, what, what do you think like Dr. Prasad going to say uh, because, because we already knew <laughs> because we already knew from from listening to your podcast you're probably going to go exactly sort of at this point like at this well we we don't know after this study like it it that wasn't the design it wasn't done so yes it's plausible that this uh, that this um, results in a in a better outcome, but in in the end we don't know. But I mean, the the authors kind of state that. Um, yeah. I'm I'm in this case I'm inclined to agree with the authors mm -hmm. because simply because uh, prostatectomy is such a morbid, morbid and large operation, and avoiding that and just maybe going to androgen deprivation therapy first, maybe going to radiotherapy plus androgen deprivation therapy probably just avoids a lot of this like immediate morbidity and mortality associated with the with the uh, surgery so so i mean in this point i'm kind of inclined to agree with the authors that it makes sense to um to i guess i would say um my 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 natural inclination is like yours anton which is that um, you know, I'm looking to spare people unnecessary local therapy as much as possible. And I am constantly um, in tumor boards where I believe that local therapy will not provide benefit for somebody in whom the horse has left the barn. And I guess I yeah. would have 100% been where you are um, emotionally and intellectually were it not for this this damn stampede study, because this stampede study did disrupt my prior here. In this stampede study, they had patients with documented metastatic disease, and they're randomizing them to radiotherapy of the prostate. And those that do not cross the stampede high volume threshold are having an OS benefit. I mean, that to me sort yeah. of is a, a really provocative. But I mean, but yeah. I mean, yeah. but, I, but, but I mean, they were sorry, sorry to interrupt you. No, but no, I mean, they, they were, um, they were. Uh, they said change from from curative to palliative treatment. I mean, they may still receive um, palliative radiotherapy of the prostate, which which they often do, simply also because of the the uh, like the low problems that tumor causes, like invasion of the rectum or uh, urinary obstruction. So they might still receive local control of the tumor, um, just not a prostatectomy. I see. Right. right. That's a okay. That's a fair point. They may still may see external beam radiotherapy. Uh, exactly. And in fact, actually, now I would be curious to know. Um, um, I would be curious to know if they are, and 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 what dose of radiotherapy they are receiving, um, and whether or not it is the. Uh, that's a, that's a good question. That's a good point. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So, um, uh, so so I guess you're right. It it would might make you change. Um, okay, so. Uh, Anton made a very interesting point because we're having this very, you know, this sort of nuanced discussion of whether or not the changes in management were um, salutatory or perhaps um, detrimental. And Anton said, let's go change, check the changes in management. We're looking at the supplement. And it, it does seem to say um, what the altered management plan was. But I guess the challenge we're facing is it doesn't make it clear what it was prior. <laughs> and so I guess if Anton's point is right, that people who are slated for surgery are instead getting external beam radiotherapy, um, you know, I think he's making a fair point, which is that you're sparing someone the morbidity of a surgery. Um, and so I, I will concede that that's a, that's a good point here. Um, okay, so I think I, 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 I take your point. Your point is that 
even in the absence of definitive evidence that this is improving outcomes, you're inclined to think it might be. I'm going to take a deep, deep look at this now because <laughs> you piqued my interest. Um, and uh, you piqued my interest, but I'm going to take a deep, deep look, but we will come back to it. But, you know, overall, um, you know, let's just hit the takeaway points on this before we talk about the other paper real quick. Um, the takeaway points, I think, are that, um, uh, you know, this imaging appears to uh, be more sensitive than at least CT and um, and uh, bone scan. Um, and that sensitivity um, may, uh, uh, that sensitivity translates into better discrimination. The, a a uh, the AUC is better. And that may lead to management changes that are good for patients. May. Fair enough? Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. It may not too. That's the that's what I want to come back to. But all right, I'll look into that more. Okay, so now let's talk about the next paper, um, the New England Journal paper, MRI targeted or standard biopsy for prostate cancer diagnosis, the precision study. Okay, so this is a different situation in medicine. This is somebody in whom the PSA is going up and we send them to the urologist and the urologist has to make a decision of whether or not to follow the PSA, um, you know, or to take them for a uh, transrectal ultrasound guided 12 core needle biopsy, which is the standard of care, or to do this new thing where they do MRI targeted core biopsies and, and, um, the idea is, of course, instead of doing something blindly, let's use information and imaging to guide us. And ostensibly, that would mean that we make more prudent biopsy choices. We're more likely to biopsy places that have prostate cancer. We're more likely to biopsy places that have high-grade Gleason prostate cancer. Um, one of the things baked into this is that the group um, is getting, so this is a multi-center randomized non-inferiority study, which I'm going to complain about that it's non-inferior. Um, but it's really looking at what percentage of people who undergo this strategy are diagnosed with Gleason 4 plus 3 cancer, Gleason 7. But Gleason 7 is slightly different if it's 4 plus 3 or 3 plus 4, which is kind of a, a side that I don't know if we should go into. Do you want to go into that, Dr. Wu? I'm I mean, that's going to be a whole discussion on its own, right? Yeah, <laughs> okay. All I right. Mean, so I, 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 yeah. Let's put that aside for today. Mm -hmm. um, let's just say, so this is, it's looking to see what percent of that we diagnose. My first questions are, explain to me this MRI of the, um, of the prostate. Um, it is, uh, it, it is, um, uh, obviously requires, at least in this study, what a 1.5 Tesla MRI. Um, does it also require an endorectal coil? I, I think they don't require that, and that I think the the research also shows that it's not really those technical factors are not really that necessary as long as your protocols are optimized. Uh, you can use a 1.5 or a three Tesla magnet. You can use the endorectal coil, or you can't use it. Uh, yeah, the only the only thing I do remember from uh, more like a pragmatic point of view is I think, uh, or at least my uh, because we in my, at my home institution we switched from direct coil to no endorectal coil which was uh much better tolerated yeah the much better because the endorectal yeah yeah the endorectal <laughs> coil actually is quite sizable so it's it's very discomfortable um i describe the, it as, a, as uh, a baseball bat with a tennis ball on the end is that unfair 
That is oh. that is pretty fair. That's pretty fair. Uh, yes. So that's not a yeah, you know. So yeah. I, every, the moment somebody said that screening is going to go to this, and they showed me that thing, I was like, no way, that's not going to happen. I don't care how good that is. Exactly, that, no one's exactly. going to want that. I, I, uh, I always, I always, as a, I always, the residents were the ones that had to place the endorectal coil in our institution, and I, I always use like a, a whole, a whole little bottle of lube to, to kind of to do <laughs> facilitate it. it. But I always, I always felt so sorry for the poor men. So I'm very happy we kind of overcame that. Yes, uh, that is that is a good point. Now, um, the next question for you is: um, uh, when the MRI guided biopsies are done, um, is the urologist um, uh, doing the biopsy while the patient is in the MRI machine? Yeah, so that's that's usually that's usually not the case. Those are quite rare at uh, at my home institution where where, where I train in Zurich. Uh, we had few cases where, and there was actually the radiologists who would do the the biopsy. So, so I did a, a fair amount of those. Uh, it's we, we usually only did them in patients who were uh, had multiple prior negative biopsies and and rising or persistent uh, PSA elevation. Um, and usually those patients would have a quite a small lesion on MRI, so so that it would be likely to or or like a difficult location, uh, like an anterior location, for example. Okay. Where it was likely that the lesion would be missed, uh, I, I think, in, and and this is one of the points where uh, that that I've found a little bit critical in this study was that they. But again, I think it's a pragmatic uh, point for a multicenter study to just allow people to do it however they usually do it. But they allowed here to do the quote unquote mental fusion or software fusion. So in the software fusion, you take the MRI data and you um, somebody digitally contours the prostate and the tumor, and then you fuse that data with your um, with your ultrasound, uh, ultrasound machine, yeah, yeah. and that way you target it. That's the that's the sophisticated software variant. The quote unquote mental fusion is just the urologist looks at the image, just looks at the arrows that the radiologist places and he's like, Yeah, right, it's in the posterior base and then he goes through the does the ultrasound and maybe he sees the lesion ultrasound, maybe he doesn't, but he's just gonna target that area a little more. Now I see so, that's um, the mental fusion. You know, when yeah. I I um once upon a time in neurosurgery I would see people there was a you know, sort of expensive devices created, something I think called stealth or something like that, where um they would use sort of skull landmarks to um, allow the neurosurgeon to fuse, you know, the uh, the open brain with where they think the tumor is. Um, uh, are you familiar with that? Uh, because you know, obviously, you can't be doing brain surgery and having the patient in the MRI machine. Uh, so they had to have the images up, um, and somehow they had a fused image of where they thought the tip of the needle was or the tip of the biopsy. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the same principle. Just, same principle. Uh, Further south in the body. Further south. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so um, uh, so this is an interesting study to me because, of course, the authors went for a non-inferiority study. They wanted to show that their newfangled way of biopsy was non-inferior with a five percentage point margin, and I think they postulated something like thirty percent of people would have a clinically significant prostate cancer discovered, which they, you know, described as a Gleason four plus three, um, and that it would be that this new method would be. Uh, the lower bound of the 95% confidence interval would be um, no worse than five percentage points lower than the ultrasound guided. And of course, they had a superiority test built in. Um, the reason I thought it was silly was that, you know, nobody's going to be doing this if it's non-inferior. They want it to be superior. And in fact, lo and behold, that's what they found. They found that it was superior, that if you do the MRI-targeted biopsy, you find more prostate cancer that meets their pre-specified cutoff 4 plus 3. Um 
Uh, is that a fair summary of, of what they found in this study? Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, it's probably sort of like a statistical insurance, right? Yes. It allows you to do one-sided confidence intervals and stuff. Yeah, it allows you to to get away with <laughs> a different study. Yeah, no, I, it allows you to do one-sided confidence intervals and the like. Um, Can I just uh, yes, go uh, ahead. clarify one thing? I, um, I think uh, for the precision trial, the definition... Uh, was uh, three plus four and higher. I just wanted to clarify. Oh, I'm sorry. I said four further. plus three. It's three plus four in that trial or higher. Yeah. I see. The other trial, the uh, the other trial was four plus three. Yes. Yes, I think so. I'm sorry. I've confused the two in my mind. Okay. Right. Now, why don't you remind listeners which is worse, four plus three or three plus four? So four plus three is. Uh, it means that it has more percentage of. Uh, at least in four component, which means that it's worse yeah. than a three plus four. Yeah. Yeah. So this is three plus four. So it's a little bit lower than the other trial. Okay. I'm getting the two. I apologize to the listeners. I've read all the three papers in a row, and I'm getting them confused in my mind. But okay, it was it was um uh, three plus four in this study, and they indeed find more three plus four. They found. I mean, off the top of my head, I think it was like forty percent of biopsies yielded a three plus four versus thirty percent, something like that. Yeah, it was uh, it was around it was uh, I think it was thirty eight percent versus twenty six percent, so very close to that number. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, here's here's what my my philosophical question is about this study. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk you through my thinking, and you can tell me whether or not you believe it or not. Okay. So, I mean, I guess one question that starts out here starts out this whole debate is, um, uh, like. I mean, I guess I think we should give listeners a little bit of background about prostate of a localized prostate cancer. There are lots of people with PSA elevation. And if you took every one of them and did a prostatectomy on all of them, um, you may find uh, lots of prostate cancer. You're going to find some Gleason 6, some Gleason 7, some Gleason 8, 3 plus 4, 4 plus 3, you know, all these different rate things. You're going to find all that prostate cancer. And if you follow those people many years into the future, um, I guess, according to Pivot, um, you know, you're probably not going to have an overall survival benefit, um, especially if they're T if they're T1C uh, uh, by examination. They don't have any palpable prostate. Um, maybe based on some of the old Scandinavian studies, you'll find some slight overall survival benefit. But of course, back in those days, we didn't find prostate cancer the same way. Um, there is a theory, and, and, and there's a lot of truth to this theory, that the people who benefit more from local therapy are people with high-grade Gleason. Somebody Gleason 10. That's the person that benefits more from prostatectomy versus active surveillance than somebody Gleason 6. Fair to say, that's, I think that's a working theory in the field, right? Not just theory. There's a lot of data that supports that Gleason 10 is more likely to benefit from local therapy than Gleason 6. You guys agree with me? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, but I think, and, and, and what the authors here are trying to identify, I believe, are people in whom local therapy now will make a difference. So they're using this three plus four cutoff, which is what they think the cutoff is. I think exactly where that cutoff falls is actually something of dispute, but they think that that's the cutoff. And above three plus four, Gleason seven or higher, well, you'd really want to know about that because you might want to do local therapy. But below three plus four, you know, that's somebody you can just do active surveillance anyway. Um, they're not going to need local therapy right now anyway. Is that fair to say why the authors are kind of drawing that cut point? Yeah, yeah, that's the reason why we use a definition to define uh, significant cancer in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So that's agree with you. Yeah. Okay. One of the things I want to point out here is that um, uh, 
just because you're above that cut point versus just because you're below the cut point, there may be many people with Gleason 7 disease who do not benefit from prostatectomy. And there may be some people with Gleason 6 disease who do benefit. You know, this is kind of like a rough heuristic, right? Because, um, of course, if you took out everyone's prostate and you like sliced up the whole thing, you often find Gleason that's not what you expected. And you often find, you know, different foci that you didn't expect, right? So that's kind of, um, you know, in the, in the old fashioned way, you know, baked into this. Um, however, all of the studies today date, you know, hint that this might be a useful cut point or not all of them, but many of them hint that this might be a useful cut point. And I guess what I think philosophically is interesting is that the studies that we rely on to draw the cut point are based upon finding prostate cancer the old fashioned way that even when I was doing blind biopsies, I would still find a seven. Now we shift forward and people want to say that, well, um, they, they come to believe that it's the finding of the seven that's important, but it might not be the finding of the seven that's important. It might just, it might be both the finding of the seven and the way you found the seven that even when you were doing blind biopsies, you, you nonetheless found a seven. And, and now the challenge is that MRI might make it, it might be the case that you find more seven, but there, let, let's separate that into two groups. There's Gleason seven that was going to be found MRI or no MRI. And there's Gleason 7 that is only found as a result of MRI. And the philosophical question is, is the Gleason 7 that's only found as a result of MRI the same cancer that benefits from local therapy like the Gleason 7 found without the MRI? Or is it actually biologically more akin to the Gleason 6 cancer that wasn't benefiting from local therapy? And and one reason it might be that way is that it was originally for many years probably kind of coded in that other cancer category, right? Because this is sort of, I don't know, this is sort of an advance in staging, but like, um, you know, not staging in the sense of spread in the body, but staging in the sense of like within the, the, the body of the organ itself. Um, I don't know if I'm doing a good job of kind of philosophically unpacking what I'm trying to articulate, which is that um, all of these studies in this space that um, claim that 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 our inter our imaging study has succeeded because we find more clinically significant disease, the disease they're finding solely based on their imaging technique may not be as clinically significant as the disease you would have found in the absence of their imaging technique because they're actually pointing the needle in different ways that you know might not have been found in a blind biopsy, and I think it might be that Gleason seven found this way behaves more indolently than Gleason seven found the old way. In fact. If it was more aggressive, it would have been found the old way. I don't know if that makes sense. So, uh, what are your thoughts when you hear when you hear me say that? So, so basically, what you're getting at is tumor size, right? Yes. Because the way you're saying tumors tumors were found who were found which were found easily before MRI. Yes. Well, those were the tumors. Those were the, the big ones. And and and, it's, and and Anton, I want to say it may not just be size. It might also be size and that they were located. You know where people would tend to put blind biopsy needles, which is yes, you know. Yes. Right. Okay, go on. Yeah, True. but but yeah, go on, sure. go on. Yeah. Maybe they were more posterior, more, more posterior and bigger. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of I, I think this is why there is a huge discussion about the, the reference standard, right? Yes. Uh, okay. Like, which which Gleason are we going to draw the what's clinically significant, what's not? And now it would be interesting to have like a urologist and a urologist here. Uh, but but um, like, is is a three plus four that has a tiny speckle of a four in it? Is it the same like a three plus four that has forty percent of a four component? Yes, um, because on paper they both kind of look the same, right? And then, 
So this is this is where what um, they kind of incorporate in the second study. They incorporate the concept of tensor core length uh, and include that in the definition of clinically significant, which I think sort of makes sense as a as a surrogate for the for the tumor size. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Me? So I mean I agree that this this exclusion seven that we've been looking at these days and like a decade or two decades ago could be potentially different. And that's the reason why in the plastic committee, there's actually a lot of talk about how there's going to be a shift in the paradigm about um, the risk stratification based on these biopsy results. In some institutions, um, even the pathologists take into account in their pathological reports. And obviously, when you do a target biopsy, you're going to have more number of positive cores, more percentage of a cancer within the core. And, um, and as we can see, increased number of you know, higher grade of some cancers. So um, I, I think we're in the middle of a paradigm shift where we, we have to figure out where this is going. Yeah. But um, so I agree with you on that. But on the other hand, I, I don't agree that it's it means that it's a more indolent cancer. For example, I think we just Anton briefly did mention it. The cancers that were found before or presumably more in the posterior location, you wouldn't target deep in the prostate. But with MRI, if there's a big tumor in the anterior prostate, which would have been missed um, in like two decades ago, now we would actually target that. And that cancer is significant. It's not, it's, it wasn't not detected because it was an indolent. It was not detected because of technical factors. Because of location. Yeah. I guess I, maybe I shouldn't have used the word. I, that's I, just an example. I know. I shouldn't have used the word indolent. I guess I want to say that, um, like, um, for, I have to do a better job of formulating my articulation. But I guess what I want to say is that the question that we face with prostate cancer is who benefits from surgery versus who can be actively surveilled. That's the que that's the key question. And um, every yeah. every one of these dimensions may at best be a half measure. Um, for instance, the Gleason score it's not a it's not a prophecy. Um, it's it's a it, but it's a clue. Um, the amount of t uh, the amount of cancer as percentage of core that's also a clue. Um, uh, the ratio of the amounts is also a clue. The 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 location maybe amount of clue and the biology of the cancer is probably the biggest clue. And and these are all kind of um you know uh, biomarkers of biology. The real question is biology, which we don't have like a you know a, a crystal ball. Um, and I, I guess mean, that's, yeah, that, that's that's like a general. I, I was I was just gonna say I mean that's like a that's like a general kind of conundrum in diagnostics yes, right that we yes. have all these we've I mean what's what's our what's our ultimate our ultimate uh, sort of gold standard I don't like the word gold standard but our, our ultimate reference standard is uh, survival of that disease if left untreated that's like our ultimate thing that we not not even not only cancer like take for example a, a pulmonary embolus. Uh, so we've, yes. we've established uh, 20 years ago with old CT machines that when you see a pulmonary embolus, you better treat it because otherwise the patient's going to die. Right, so right. now that we have kind of these new CT machines that we see every little tiny clot in the periphery, we still see those pulmonary emboli and we still use kind of those those old criteria that were established back then and we, we treat patients out of a precautionary principle. But... but uh, do we really need to do that? Do we cause more hemorrhage, more complications through that? Like, like we don't know. And it's the same with, with, with cancer. Yes. Our kind of, like you say, these, these Gleason criteria, everything that was established in a time. Yes. Blind biopsies. Yes, yes, so that, yes. then you, you correlate that with survival. Now suddenly your, uh, 
your uh, ruler has shifted. Yes. And, and, yes. And yeah, you, you need to you need to establish again uh, what kind of uh, where do we stand, right? Yes, and you're articulating it well. Yeah, and actually, uh, that's a great example, the pulmonary embolism example. You know, I wrote a paper in 2012 called The Diagnosis and Treatment of PE that goes through the history, and just like you say. Um, but I think that, like, uh, the way I would say the gold standard is, the gold standard of, like, a PE test is where you say, I, um, of all the people, I'm going to divide you into two groups. You're the group that's going to have a net survival benefit from anticoagulation, and you're the group that's going to have no net survival benefit or perhaps even a decrement from anticoagulation. That's the holy grail. And here the holy grail is you're the group that if I cut out your exactly. prostate, you're going to live longer than if I don't cut out the prostate. And you're the group that if I cut out your prostate, you're going to have incontinence and impotence and you're not going to live any longer than if I didn't cut out your prostate. That's the holy grail. And um, I think one of the, 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 the seductions in the space is to say that, well, we know Gleason 7 is that cutoff. And I guess I would actually say that I don't, I'm not actually 100% convinced that Gleason 7 is that cutoff. I think if anything, the cutoff is actually more stringent than, um, how can I put it? All the forces that exist in the world want that cutoff off to be lower than it really is. But so anyways, I'm not convinced it's Gleason 7. But nonetheless, um, it, whatever that cutoff is, is a product of like all of the ways in which, I, like all the data that supports the cutoff where it is, is a product of the ways in which um, the definitions that were used at the time, all that stuff is baked into it. So like your P example is perfect, which is like, the I think the original study was like 1960, randomized control trial of heparin. It was like so small. But the people who had PE in that study, it was pre-imaging. If you had a PE in 19 diggity, whatever, that was a honking PE. It was a big, massive PE, and you didn't have perfusion. And it was like everyone knew you had PE, and they're like, oh my God, this is a massive PE. And that person has a life survival benefit from heparin, no doubt. But now we're getting subsegmental PEs, and it's a person who, you know, they were playing tennis, and then they hurt their shoulder, and they said, I had a twinge of pain in my neck. And they come in, they get PE scanned, and oh, there's a little PE, and now we're anticoagulating them for three months. And now I'm like, okay, I don't know if they benefit. So it's exactly your point is well taken. Um, anyway, our time is, our time is dwindling, but, um, I guess what I wanted to say, um, one, I mean, I think, you, you know, it's a pleasure to talk to you both. I think it was like a superb job of kind of taking us through the imaging. And I really appreciate the stuff that, you know, um, about like how the test is done and things like that. Um, medical imaging and oncologic imaging is a fascinating field. Um, I'm so fascinated by it because, um, it's it's obviously more than just the technical aspects of imaging. It incorporates all of the medical aspects, the treatment aspects, and even these kind of philosophical questions like Anton is 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 broaching. Um, but I'll, I'll 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 let you guys say the last words about these two papers and any anything you think that we should have also highlighted for the listeners. Let's go with Doctor Wu first. Yeah, yeah. I'll give him I'll give him the word. He has way more notes than me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, so, I mean, these are quite wonderful two papers. I, I, I really enjoyed reading them and uh, going over them with you. Um, I mean, in the end, I think from what we have now, these are, these are the highest level evidence that, you know, shows that, you know, MRI-guided pathways are potentially better than the standard truth-guided biopsy pathway or PSME-PET is better than the conventional imaging and I, I don't think there's any doubt in, in the diagnostic capability, but um, whether it actually you know, will boil down to better outcomes or whether you know this Gleason 3 plus 4 or any definition of Gleason cancer is uh, actually correct at the time, I think that's just you know, 
a lot of changing in the paradigm because we're seeing so much advances in uh, the imaging technology and its widespread use these days. It's gonna, it's an answer that we're gonna have to question uh, and answer um, in the time coming. That's what I think. That's well put. And well, um, and uh, and would you recommend an oncologic imaging fellowship to to radiologists? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Same here. It's the best. <laughs> and, and why do you why do you guys say that? Well, I think we have some biased uh, opinions because we are both. Uh, I mean, as a resident, we are both Im- interested in oncology yeah, in the beginning. So. Yeah. I th- well, I, th- I think it's it's one of those. Uh, so kind of a going to give a very. I'm going to give a very long answer. <laughs> so, no, no, I'll try to. I'll try to shorten it. Yeah. Uh, so it's 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 one of those things where it's so there, there is there is the technical aspect which is fascinating about the the technicalities of MRI technicalities of PET, which is just if you're if you're a bit of a nerd like me, then that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, second, I think it's very it's very interesting from a from a pathophysiological point of view. Uh, and a lot of the time uh, we spend when we review image, we actually spend on the on the EHR and spend reading about the patient, what therapies did they get, when did they get therapies, which surgeries, in order to really understand everything. Um, I, I think it's to me that is uh, indefinitely more uh, interesting than than looking at like degenerative knee changes or something. Right. Um, and um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, and third, of course, uh, you do. I mean, one of the most important things about medicine is you want to have, uh, in the end of the day, you want to go home and you want to feel like you've now made a difference in the life of someone and you, yeah. you've helped someone. And that's something that oncologic imaging definitely gives you. Yeah, I think that, that that's well put. And I guess I would just say the reason I find it so fascinating is, I mean, one, you know, uh, uh, imaging is sort of, you know, it really is getting at carving nature at its joints. You know, you're trying to ever get closer to better delineating and categorizing cancer. And I think one of the things that makes it so important and interesting is that all of the therapies from local therapy to advanced therapies, they're, they, they are not benign. They have serious risks and downsides. And so the, so potentially the better we are at carving nature at the joints, the better we are at more appropriately delineating who benefits from what strategies versus others. I think that's what I find so fascinating. Okay. Last word for you, Anton. Yeah, I th- think uh, I'm. I'm. I mean, again, again, it's it's. Uh, it will be shown in the future if this kind of if this uh, better detection and, and and our sort of more precise location of the tumor really translates into better survival, or and if that sort of better, better or let's let's say different patient stratification translates into better survival. Yes. I I think it will. Again, it's just sort of my my inclination is. I really like the example that that you Sung Min said with the big anterior tumor yes. that would have just been missed simply due to the way we do biopsies. So, yes. so I do think it will. Um, I don't think prostate MRI will be like the panacea for for like prostate cancer. I think like every diagnostic test, it has its limitations. Like PSA, like you can have a, a just the other week, I had a widely metastatic and locally advanced and metastatic tumor, and the patient had a PSA of one. Four. Mm. So just just like like that, you can have um, yes, you can have uh, you can have a, a aggressive prostate cancer that you just don't see on MRI. So, so I think 
sort of in in the end it's 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 a team approach and uh, the urologist the radiation oncologist the radiologist they need to sit together and 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 look at the whole patient it's it's no use to kind of advocate for for PSA or for prostate MRI i think it's a it's a group effort in the end but i think uh, imaging has a lot to offer yeah, that's well put. Well, thank you both for doing this. I guess uh, we got to get you back and we got to get into, I mean, there's some other imaging subjects that I am always really interested in getting into, like Dota Tate, um, the neuroendocrine stuff. Uh, anyway, I won't bore you with all the things, but I guess next time there's some new imaging things, I'm going to reach out to you guys and let's uh, let's bring you back on. Yes, please. All right. Sounds great. That'd all right. Thanks for doing it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Tom Newman. Dr. Newman is Professor Emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco. He is a pediatrician, a NICU doctor, and a epidemiologist extraordinaire. He's the author of the second edition of Evidence-Based Diagnosis. His new book is out with Michael Cohen, An Introduction to Clinical Epidemiology. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're also going to talk about, you know, all sorts of things. Dr. Newman, it's a pleasure to see you here. It's a pleasure to be here. I have one correction to your introduction. Okay. Although I sometimes take care of babies in the NICU, I'm not a neonatologist. I'm a general pediatrician. You're a pediatrician, and uh, you wor- you've uh, worked in the NICU for a long time. Well, my clinical work is in the newborn nursery, which is I mostly see. well babies, mother-baby unit, and babies who are maybe a little bit sick. Like, I can take care of them if they need IV antibiotics or bilirubin lights or something, but not if they're on a ventilator or I see. pressors or anything like that. I see. And you have, um, you practice at UCSF since, since the 1980s. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I actually came to UCSF at the end of 1978 as a third year medical student and have been here ever since. Where'd you do your first two years? At UC San Diego. Okay. I see. I actually graduated from UC San Diego. So how come you did your, uh, the clerkship rotations up here? Because my wife started pharmacy school at UCSF in 78. I see. And they allowed you to make that switch, huh? Oh, absolutely. They didn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Johan had gotten accepted to pharmacy school in 76. Yeah. Um, uh, but I didn't get into UCSF med school. So, I went to San Diego. She got a master's degree in chemistry waiting for me. Then you know, uh, applied and got in again at uh, UCSF Pharmacy School. I wanted to transfer. I had someone at UCSF who wanted to switch places with me. Oh, wow. Schedule. Yeah. Um, and UC San Diego said, sure, that's fine. And UCSF said no. Oh, so, my goodness. And I, you know, I wasn't that bad. I had been on the alternate list. <laughs> so then um, I, you, you then I, just, yeah. I had to just get permission from the clerkship directors in San Diego. I say for each each rotation, San Francisco. And it was fine. Actually, the financial aid was way more generous in San Diego anyway. So I ended up coming out ahead. <laughs> and then you did your residency here. Yeah. And then you stayed on and you were one of the first faculty members in epidemiology biostatistics. Oh, no, well, <laughs> uh, that's because the, the department changed its name. But the department, it had been, uh, the department of Epidemiology and International Health when I, I first joined it. And I think it even had another name before that. And I started out in the Department of Pediatrics primarily with a secondary appointment in Epi. I see. And then I was an associate professor in the Department of Laboratory Medicine. 
and then was a full professor in the Department of Epidemiology. So I just kept ch- switching departments. I see. So at this point, is it fair to say you're a UCSF lifer? Yeah, that's why they call it UCSF. You can stay forever. <laughs> that's the that's the moniker. Um, and you've done a lot of teaching over the years. How many different courses have you run or taught? Uh, too many to count? Well, probably less than 10. I, yeah, okay. it's, it's, it's a lot. But um, mostly, I mean, the, the one that um, I think I've had the biggest impact on has been the steadiest is the clinical epidemiology course on which that book is based. Yeah. And um, who, and who takes that course? Um, it's people in the first year of either our PhD program or our training and clinical research program. So the the training and clinical research program, especially yeah. uh, known as Ticker here, yes, the Ticker. There's there's a a summer a summer program. Uh, there's a one year certificate program and a two year master's degree program. And there's an MD MAS program where medical students can get a master's degree uh, with an additional year uh, as part of their their medical school training. Yeah, and so it's the first year either one-year or two-year master's program students. And there's some students who take it a la carte, but um, most of them are part of the ticker program. So my question about teaching clinical epi, well, I guess, you know, maybe, maybe I'll first ask you, you know, how do you define clinical epi? What, do you, what, what is it about clinical epi that distinguishes itself from epidemiology more broadly? Well, I think epidemiology more broadly, broadly is much more concerned with the causes of disease. Yeah. You know, risk factors and... and you know, the distribution of disease in populations. Um, but of course, it's kind of heavily quantitative and statistical and involves considerations of bias and causality and measurement and things like that. Clinical epi uses a lot of those same methods, but applies it much more to clinical as opposed to public health decisions. Yeah. So, for example, the whole topic of how do you diagnose disease? Yeah. You know, sensitivity, specificity, the biases and studies of screening tests. A lot of those are not that big a part of regular epidemiology, but are a much bigger part of clinical epidemiology. Yeah. And, you know, randomized trials and, yeah. and alternative randomized trials for studying treatments. You know, regular epidemiology, not so much about treatments, much more about underlying causes of the disease. That's well put. Clinical epidemiology, then it sounds like it is the true basic science of being a doctor. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, actually, so this course that we, you know, have taught since the 80s, um, when we first, actually it wasn't we, it was just I, when I first <laughs> taught it, um, before Michael Cohn, who's my co-author, took it, um, we used a textbook by Sackett, Haynes, and oh, Tugwell. Oh, yes, I know it well. Well, Clinical Epidemiology by Sackett, Haynes, and yeah. Yeah, and the subtitle of that Clinical Epidemiology book was The Basic Science for Clinical Medicine. Or yeah. Science for Clinical Medicine. I think I own like the second edition of that book, but I don't think I own a first edition of it. But yeah, that was a classic. Um, but here's my question. And, and, you know, I think some of the things that concern them still concern you, although, of course, your book brings it up to, you know, there have been some advances in terms of changing ideas and changing views in the field, which we can get into. But I guess my first question to you that I have as sort of a philosophical question, which is, you know, when you teach people clinical epidemiology, you have, there are two things you need to teach them. One, 
you need to give them the vocabulary, the kind of, you know, canonical understanding of sensitivity, specificity, screening tests, you know, all, all those sorts of concepts that you alluded to. The next thing is, you know, you need to make them aware of the ongoing debates in the field, because even though there's this core that a lot of people agree upon, there's all this stuff that we're just constantly debating and rehashing and, and coming to terms with. And I guess that's what I find philosophically the tough part about being a teacher is that, you know, when you're outside of the classroom, you and I, as people who are like engaged in the scholarship, we're heavy in the debate side. We're on the we're on that part of where we're debating the pros and cons of different approaches. Then when you got to go and teach it, you got to give people, I mean, before they can understand the debate, they got to understand some of the fundamentals. How do you balance it? How do you re, how do you teach them the things they need to know, the canon, and how do you teach them the parts of the canon that are under remodeling? I think we mostly teach them stuff that they need to know that isn't particularly controversial. Okay. I, I, I mean, I think I'm trying to think what are the big, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think clinical epidemiology and evidence-based medicine are often maligned and misused. Yeah. And the last chapter in the book is about sort of our, our thoughts about some of the criticism of, of evidence-based medicine and how we respond to those. Um, they're mostly not criticisms of evidence-based medicine. They're criticisms of how it has been co-opted and misused by powerful corporations and people. Uh, so ways that the insurance industry might use it as a way to avoid covering stuff they don't want to pay for, or how the pharmaceutical industry, um, by selectively publishing their results, kind of makes the whole literature on which evidence-based medicine is based suspect because of uh, biases in the studies they publish and and lack of studies that uh, they didn't publish because they didn't get the result they wanted. Yeah. I think well, that, what, what controversies were you thinking about? No, I guess I, I guess I would say that, I mean, I think you're right, that I always say that when people are critical of evidence-based medicine, it's like... Um, it's like going to the airport and, and flying on United Airlines. Obviously, you feel very critical of it, but it's not the fault of the airplane. It's a fault of a lot of the ways in which you're using the airplane. You put the seats too close together and you made me bored like an animal. I mean, those things make it miserable, but it's not the airplane's fault. The airplane is still sound. But I guess the reason I brought it up is, you know, um, today uh, in the, uh, you know, I'm teaching uh, the small group for um, the medical school, the epidemiology uh, coursework um, today. And, uh, Oh, oh, yeah, you too. Okay, so we're teaching about matched case control analyses. Um, and, and let me just read you something from the BMJ. This was an article that came out a few years ago. Um, there are two common misconceptions about case control studies, that matching in itself eliminates confounding by the matching factors, and that if matching has been performed, then a match analysis is required. However, matching in a case control study does not control for confounding by the matching factors. In fact, it can introduce confounding by the matching factors even when it did not exist in the source population. Thus, a match design may require controlling for the matching factors in the analysis. However, it is not the case that a match design requires a match analysis, provided that there are no problems of sparse data. Controlling for the matching factors can be obtained with no loss of validity and a possible increase in precision using a standard unconditional analysis. So I guess I, I would just say that, like, you know, we got to teach him the canonical thinking around matched analyses. But, um, you know, there are people in the field who have different views on matched case control analyses and whether or not to adjust for matching variables. That was just one example I thought of. You know, some of the other ones I think that are tricky are, um, you know, with screening tests. I think the way you need to teach somebody initially 
is um, cause-specific mortality. The goal of the screening test, randomized control trial screening test, is to reduce death from that cause. Um, but then I think there's a live debate around uh, all-cause mortality versus cause-specific mortality um, and whether or not there might be off-target harms that are not readily apparent or captured. So those are just kind of some examples. But but I mean, your point is, well, I, I, yeah. So it turns out that paper that you're describing, yeah. I had read last week because... Um, the director of the course and I had a back and forth. <laughs> oh, okay. So you did debate it, huh? Yeah. yeah well, we, well, there wasn't really any debate that we thought it wasn't appropriate to bring up that controversy to the medical students because it's, uh, it's, it's pretty subtle. Yes. Uh, that particular paper that uh, says you don't need to do a matched yes. analysis to do a, a matched case control study. Well, the, the little disclaimer there is unless the data are sparse. So yes. if you're doing individual matching, if you're matching each case to a control, yes. uh, then in fact you have to do a matched analysis or you get the wrong answer. Right. Uh, they point out that if you stratify on all the matching factors or you include them in a multivariate analysis, then you may no longer need to do that. In a way, when you individually match, it's like you're you have these strata, each one of which just has one case and one control. Yes. So, um, so for that one, um, I think just enough for the students to know what matching is. Yes. And some advantages and disadvantages. And if they ever have to, you know, analyze a match study, I'm sure they'll be able to learn some more and get some help. Yeah. Or the, the controversy about whether, a, you know, a screening test needs to yes. show a reduction in total mortality. Um, I think that's where there's there's no substitute for understanding or at least thinking out the biology, thinking about the biology of what you're doing. Um, we actually discussed this in the. We have a nice. There's a nice uh, um, figure in the book that shows the cause-specific mortality as a proportion of total mortality. Yes. For some of the commons yes. uh, screening tests. And it's often very slight. Yeah. I'm in chapter 10. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, oh, yeah, that's it. Figure, yeah, 1010. That's the Bill Black paper from 2002 and uh, JNCI. Yeah. 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 So that's, I mean, I think that's, but, you know, as we point out in the book, it kind of depends on what your intervention is. Yeah. Um, if your intervention is something that's unlikely to have systematic uh, systemic effects, you know, like you, you, you know, find a, a melanoma or a, sure. a colon polyp or a cancer and sure. you cut it out. Sure. And then you're kind of done. That's very different from either treatment with radiation yep. or with hormonal therapies yep. or chemotherapy yep. or something like that. That not only is that plausible, but we cite a meta-analysis in the book of uh, an individual level meta-analysis of 20,000 women uh, who had received um, radiation treatment yeah. for breast cancer. Yeah. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but you know, there's like a 5% yeah. absolute decrease in breast cancer mortality and a 5% absolute increase in cardiovascular yeah, mortality. Cardiovascular mortality, right? Yeah. Um, they just exactly cancel out. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and yet, you know, in any study, those cardiovascular deaths would not have been counted as related to breast cancer, even though we know there would be an excess uh, among women who got radiation for, uh, especially of the, the left breast. And we know that um, 
that that's more likely to happen if they have breast cancer diagnosed, which is more likely to happen if they get mammography. Yeah. Now, that's a terrific example, I think, where if you look at the randomized trial, you can see a cause-specific benefit. There may be a signal going the other way in non-breast cancer death, but of course, the trial is not powered, designed, or suited to really detect that difference because that 5%, that, that absolute difference in the, in the rest of the death is really, really small and hard to distinguish. Yeah. I think the other one that lends itself to those kinds of questions are CT screening for lung cancer, because the moment you start putting somebody in that CAT scanner for CT screening, you find a lot of things that you didn't intend to find, and you end up on these sort of diagnostic odysseys, chasing things for a long time, and there may be off-target harms and, and bad outcomes as a result of some of that chasing that wasn't really well captured, I think, in NLST or Nelson. Um, yeah. You, you probably mentioned Gil Welch before on this podcast. He's been a guest once, a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm a big fan. His his books, Overdiagnosis and um, Should I Be Screened for Cancer? Maybe not. And then the latest one is uh, Less Medicine, More Health. Less Medicine, More Health. Yeah, yeah. And and one of the nice things, especially about the last book, is is he gets through in, in a, I think, a better way than, than I do because he tells actual stories. Yes. Which, which is how people actually change their understanding of <laughs> by stories. So um, so not only does he understand epidemiology and, and, and has, has he been a leader in, in, in pointing out some of the possible harms from overdiagnosis and cancer screening, but, but he has the stories to go with it. I think that that's... That's 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 one of the things that was nice about that that book. I, I've enjoyed all those books, uh, um, but you know, I think it's a double-edged sword with stories because on the one hand, I don't know. Part of what we're training people to do is reason without stories, um, and then yet somehow it is more persuasive to to reason with stories. Sometimes, um, you know, it's a tricky business. I think. Well, the the stories really help it stick. Yes, so they help it, it stick. Really understand the theory and the math and and the epidemiology and so on. But um, I think, I mean, one of the other things, especially in pediatrics, that we're we're teaching now, it's a required part of the residency program, is advocacy. What you know, how do, how do you change policy? Yes, how do you change minds and uh, and stories are important in that. So it it's is a good one. Now let me let me turn to your your book. So I think that you know in even in our little discussion though I think one point that came across to me is that um uh it's so easy in epidemiology um to 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 be really curious about something and just kind of dig a little deeper dig a little deeper dig a little deeper dig a little deeper um that's a natural temptation in epidemiology would you say? Yeah, I think so. Well, uh Especially, I would say, especially if you have someone to talk to it about. Talk That's to true. About. <laughs> I, I don't feel the same way about the Krebs cycle. The moment I heard it, I, I knew all I needed, to, I cared to know about that. <laughs> and since then, I, I realized I, I had known more than I needed to know about that in the years since. But epidemiology, I think, with every passing year, I feel as if um, what I, the time I spent reading about it uh, pays more and more dividends with each passing year. Not just, of course, with research interests, but of course, in the clinic too. When you really start to talk about new technologies, new tests, new devices, when you get a new illness like COVID-19 no one's ever heard of, and you want to start reasoning about you know, would this be a good idea to do X, Y, or Z, screen people, test people, you know, when you start to get into those issues, 
the 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 tools of the trade are clinical epidemiology tools would you say yeah yeah and and, and you know especially as the as the proportion of clinical trials paid for by industry has steadily increased yeah and the huge amount of venture capital that's being invested in the pharmaceutical industry that wants a return yeah and, and so the pressure on companies to um get to where their drug is approved and then sell as much of it as possible um it really is helpful uh for clinicians to understand you know the basics of study design and analysis and how those can be manipulated to get the answer that you want oh yes that's my one of my favorite things to think about because I think you you put it well. You know, the temptation to get the result you want is really really great. Um, yeah. I mean, that, of yeah. course, that happens to, to all scientists. I mean, yeah. anytime having having done that, I've done countless analyses where I'm sitting there in front of my computer and looking at things and thinking, oh, this would be interesting. And then, of course, the stuff that suddenly gets really interesting is when you have a statistically significant result, <laughs> and especially one that goes in the direction of your biases. Of course. But, and you know, so, I, you know I, I think you're right, especially if somebody does research, yeah, that um, there are certain hypotheses that, you know, you're like hoping P.04, 049990, you got it, yeah. But um, I think the other interesting thing sometimes about doing research is trying to come up with ideas where regardless of the answer, null or significant, regardless of the answer, um, it will be very provocative and interesting you know those rare questions where um no matter what you get out of this this is going to be something people want to know about either way yeah i mean that's ideally yeah actually when we when we teach design and clinical research i try to i try to stress that is you are not trying to get a specific result you are trying to get the answer to an important question yes that's but, good yeah but if you look at the language people use um People tend to divide trials into positive trials oh, and negative yes. trials, and they even talk about failed trials. Yeah. And, and and often a so-called failed trial is a huge success because it got the answer yeah. to the question, which is the drug doesn't work, but it got the answer. Yeah, I think that that's spot on. Yeah, that we call them pejorative things like failed or negative, but often that's a trial that saved you $20 billion a year. You should be grateful for that trial, yeah. I guess the other class of research that I think gets a uh, short shrift is just simple descriptive research. You know, it's so, it, it's not, you know, sometimes you come to a field and people have strong feelings and strong opinions and you just want to know basic things like, well, how many people a year get this drug? Or, you know, who are the kinds of people who get that procedure or surgery? Who are they? What are they doing it for? Um, and sometimes just really simple descriptive projects, I find um, they really can throw your priors, shape your priors and, um, you know, can really, really resonate with people in a field. Yeah, and when you talk about shaping priors, that sort of has to do with diagnosing disease. Yeah. But same types of uh, descriptive studies can be very helpful when selecting treatments. Yeah. Because you know, as you know, and I think this is particularly true in oncology. There, there are many treatments where the benefit has to do with how high your risk is. Yes. But the risks of side effects and so on are not so much dependent on that, and so. The key to deciding whether the benefits are going to exceed the risks and costs is knowing what those the risk of the bad outcome or what the mortality would be with current treatment or or whatever with uh, with some disease. Yeah, and especially for I mean 
in my area, which is pediatrics, where you know all the diseases are less common, yeah, so they all take yeah. bigger sample size, yeah. and you know the there's there's less research. Um, just studies that quantify how commonly a disease occurs or how commonly a bad outcome from that disease occurs can be helpful even in deciding which patients to treat. Yeah, that's well put. So you title your book, this is the second edition now, Evidence-Based Diagnosis, an Introduction to Clinical Epidemiology. What I was curious about was, I mean, this is a book about clinical epidemiology, but you center it based on evidence-based diagnosis. Why did you pick that title? I mean, what does diagnosis mean to you? Um, uh, well, that's yeah. actually the topic of chapter one. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> diagnosis means, you know, and uh, we, we point out that um, that what we're trying to, that, that there are different purposes of diagnosis and the particular classification scheme you use to classify collections of signs and symptoms and, and illnesses can depend on what decision you're trying to make. Yes. Um, the decision to call it that, you know, was one made with the first edition, and it was probably a mistake because, oh. <laughs> as you, as you've gathered, um, oh, it's pretty much a clinical epidemiology book. It has some, some increased focus on diagnosis, but the stuff that you would expect to find in a clinical epidemiology book, like uh, analyzing, you know, randomized trials and number needed to treat mm -hmm. and uh, screening tests and and even alternatives to randomized trials. It's it's all in there. Yeah, it's all in there. Um, at the time, um, it seemed like maybe this was a way to. Well, at the time, actually, I was. I, I my primary point was in laboratory medicine. Yeah, what were you doing there? <laughs> so they were the ones that were paying my salary. What were you doing so, for them? <laughs> um, I got that job because when I was an assistant professor in pediatrics, I had been one of the few people outside lab medicine to use a laboratory medicine database that they had assembled because they wanted people to do research on lab tests. I see. Yeah. And I found out about this database and used it to do researches. My first research grant was laboratory tests commonly ordered to evaluate jaundice in newborn babies. I see. And um, this, the, the idea of this database, unfortunately, was just about 20 or 30 years ahead of its time. Wow. It had been started by... Lewis Shiner, a, um, a, a professor in laboratory medicine and uh, working with Eric Goldman, who was actually an endocrinologist. Mm. And uh, my point in lab medicine came about actually because Eric decided he didn't want to keep uh, working on this database. And they were looking for, actually, they were looking for an internist, but I applied and said, maybe you'd consider me. Yeah. And uh, they actually... Uh, they hired me into lab medicine, and my salary immediately jumped by fifty percent. And my <laughs> I'll take it. Went to zero. So oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> yeah. So, what year was the first edition of the book written? Um, let's see. It was, I think, I don't even remember. Let's see, the first one, the book. Um, I started teaching the course on which the book is based, I think, in about 1995 or so. I see. And at that time, I was teaching it to lab medicine residents and Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholars. Yeah. 
Uh, we had a program here with Stanford, and I was the associate director of the UCSF part. Um, and I think the first edition of the book was 2008. I see. Does that sound right? I can look. I think that sounds right. Let me double check. There's someplace. 2009. It says 2009. Okay. So, In the um, midst of the financial crisis, the evidence-based diagnosis book came out. I want to give listeners a little bit of the flavor of what they're going to cover in this book. So I think you did a really nice job of talking about dichotomous tests, multi-level and continuous tests, ROC curves. Um, the, the, how do you appraise a diagnostic test? What are the factors that go into your consideration of you know, when to deploy it and how to interpret it? Um, reliability and measurement error, the cornerstone of, I think, you know, any, uh, understanding any test, um, risk prediction, which has now become sort of a field, a, a discipline into itself. Risk prediction has just boomed, um, multivariate, multivariable, not multivariate, multivariable risk models, quantifying treatment effects using randomized trials, alternatives to randomized controlled trials that where, you know, obviously so much rich discussion continues. Um, and the allure of that mythical um, trial that tells you everything a randomized trial could, uh, but doesn't require you to do much. That's the mythical, the mythical trial out there. Screening tests, which is just a classic. Um, P-values, the, 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 the most commonly used value that no one can tell you what it means, um, and challenges for evidence-based diagnosis. Uh, so it's really the book for somebody who's a budding clinician, really, and a clinical researcher, for sure. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, I think you don't need to want to do research at all for the book to be helpful. I think, do think it will, it will help you if you're a clinician to be a better clinician. Uh, if you're a patient, it can help you to ask better questions of your clinician and become more actively involved in, uh, in your own care. It's you know, not all of when we start teaching us, all of the people taking the class were doctors. Uh -huh. um, but that's not the case anymore. We have a fair number of uh, of our master's students who have not been to medical school. Some of them want to go to medical school, and some of them, you know, want jobs in in you know the research sector. And so we've tried to you know reduce the amount of jargon. And if we introduce some disease, we explain a little bit about about what it is or some procedure, and you know, we've been helped with that by having the students who are taking the class and don't understand stuff letting us know what what stuff they just didn't understand so we could try to make it a bit more transparent. Yeah. But I think the primary audience is probably clinicians. How did you, with your co-authors, how do you divide and tackle a book like this when you work on it? Well, um, so the way this book came about is, you know, I had been teaching this course based on the Sackett textbook for a number of years when Michael Cohn took it. Yeah. And I had, you know, developed a syllabus that had problems and additional explanations and additional materials that just kept getting bigger. Yeah. And um, Michael at one point said, you ought to turn this into a textbook. And I said, yeah, I ought to someday when I have time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he just kept pushing me. I see. And uh, and because he just was very enthusiastic about it, about yeah. this material. He's an emergency room physician. Yeah. Um, and so this part about diagnosis, of course, is a big, big part of emergency medicine, you know, much more than the kind of chronic disease management that takes up a lot of your time in, in other specialties. So with with constant encouragement by Michael, and Michael also loves writing problems. Oh, I we see. Both, you do. We both, we, we both love reading an article and saying, ooh, this would make a great problem. I see. 
I see. But a great problem for our book. So, so then we just started collaborating. He would find, you know, ways to help me make things clearer. He took primary responsibility for uh, the chapters on prediction and multi-level tests. Yeah. Part of that came about because when we started teaching the course together, those were the parts he wanted to teach. When you when you give somebody a diagnosis, I mean, it serves, um, you know, sort of a number of purposes. One is to kind of give somebody a name for what's plaguing them. Another is so that they have some sense of their prognosis. Um, maybe at its best, a diagnosis allows you to tease a group of people um, apart who benefit from some therapy and people who do not have a diagnosis do not benefit from some therapy. Would you say that, you know, is that sort of how you approach philosophically, you know, what it means to give a diagnosis? Yeah, that's sort of the, why that material is in chapter one and yeah. the very first chapter is um, because for most of the rest of the book, we use this sort of simplified model where the reason why you want to make the diagnosis is because there is some treatment and the benefits of treatment exceed the risks and costs if you have the disease and not if you don't. Yeah. And so, as you might imagine, if, if the treatment is inexpensive and non-toxic. You, you may not need to make the diagnosis, yeah. Well, it, it, it may be that, that um, the best decision would be to treat even if there's only a 10% chance okay. that the person has the disease. Right. Because you don't mind treating those, you know, those nine people who don't have it, each one who does, if the treatment is harmless and the benefit is big. Right. It could even be one percent. It right. could be something very small. Right. Um, or it could even be know, everybody. That's why they're putting fluoride in the water, and that's why someone wants to put a statin in there too. It could. It could be everybody. Yeah. Um, so that's the focus on the. You know, we when we talk about. What I just described was sort of a simplified explanation yeah. of the concept of a treatment threshold. Yes. And the treatment threshold depends on the relative costs uh, of treating someone who doesn't have it versus the benefits of treating someone who does. You know, you can think the uh, alternatively, if you have a really toxic treatment. Yes. That's my you know, business. Think about, yeah. Think about your business, chemotherapy. Yeah. You know, you don't start someone on chemo unless you're pretty sure they have cancer. I, that's correct. For the most part, although there was unfortunately a, an oncologist in Detroit who's recently facing felony charges for doing the opposite. But you're right. For the most part, you really need to know they have cancer before you give the chemotherapy. That's for sure. Yeah. So, but we, we point out in chapter one that, um, that there are other reasons to make a diagnosis. Yes. And even just giving giving somebody's illness a name can can be comforting. And um, nowadays, giving them a, their illness a name is is empowering because then they can start searching web and, and learning about it. Yeah, and, and, and uh, investigating and coming back to you with a whole list of questions based on what they they found on the web. How do you think about number needed to treat? I mean. Listeners of this podcast might be familiar with the number needed to treat, but um, how do, how do you think about it as a clinician? Where do you use it? Where do you like it? Um, what do you how do you how do you think about it? Well, um, I think the 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 main time that comes up is I mean especially is when the number needed to treat is high. Yes, if, if almost everyone that you treat benefits from it. You know, you don't really think about it much. Yes, but when you have uh, especially, I would say this happens when you're. Memory treat is sort of most crucial when 
the thing you're treating isn't even actually a disease. Mm, yes. It's a risk factor. Yes. You know, so for the, the, the things like having a high cholesterol level or a high blood pressure or something like that, where uh, one important thing is it's, you know, because number, number needed to treat is one over, people say, think of it as one over the risk difference. Um, it's also often one over the rate difference, which means time is in the denominator. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so that when you do number need to treat, it's not just you need to treat 100 people, but you need to treat 100 people for a year. Or five years or, or six years, right. For, yeah. So it's not just a number. It's a number times a time. Right. How many people you need to treat for how long. Right. For each one who benefits. And one of my areas of research and advocacy mostly advocacy relates to uh, so-called dyslipidemia screening in children. Mm -hmm. where, uh, believe it or not, um, uh, an expert panel of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute has recommended that all children have uh, lipid screening between ages 9 and 11. Mm -hmm. I've seen that, yes. Again, How do you uh, feel about that? Um, <laughs> I, I think it was... It is, you know, well-intentioned. Yeah, okay. You know, the, the idea is to identify children with familial hypercholesterolemia sure. sooner than later. Sure. Um, if, you, if you look at the actual couple hundred page uh, report from this expert panel, uh, you'll find a chapter that the people writing the lipid chapter kind of ignored. Yeah which emphasizes the need to estimate the number needed to treat. Yes. For how long? You know, so how many children do you need to screen of the ones that you identify? You know, um, what is the evidence that treating them sooner rather than later improves outcome? How yes. many do you need to treat for how long? None of that has been done, and they, had, they didn't even estimate. I see. Yes, um, that's what I would wonder. And, and as a result, I mean, if they had, they wouldn't have made the recommendation they did. Yeah, I so, guess I guess the challenges I see that make it an uphill climb are one, um, the the person you're identifying with familiar hyperlipidemia at 11, you might otherwise identify at 19. I mean, you're not going to identify them at 72 uh, because they're very likely going to get uh, their first lipid test between the age of 20, 25 or something like that. Um, that's one. So that means that, that the earliest you could treat them is just 10 years earlier. The second thing is I'm not sure how eager people are to administer HMG-CoA reductase therapy to an 11-year-old. The third thing I would think that would be kind of an issue is you're going to find, of course, the rare familiar hyperlipidemic, but you might also find a lot of people who are just kind of a little bit above average with, hyperlip with hyperlipidemia. There may be an indication drift, a temptation to treat those kids too. Well, that's exactly what happens. Of course. So, so if the people doing this would have said the disease we're searching for is familial hypercholesterolemia. Yes you know, which is about one in 200. Yes. And um, you either have it or you don't. We yes. We can come up with a genetic test or you have these sure. high levels. Then I still would have been skeptical, but it wouldn't have aroused the level of opposition that they, because lipid levels in childhood do statistically significantly track into adulthood. Yes. There is exactly this mission creep that these people to want to, start putting these children on diets or giving them dietary recommendations and so on. Um, and the way they, 
if you look at how they define, so you're going to do this test. Okay, so how do I interpret the result? For most of the lipids, they consider the bottom 75% they label acceptable. Hmm. So with, with the implication that 25% of children... is unacceptable. <laughs> unacceptable. Unacceptable, right? So, so that seems a, a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit misguided, yeah. Yeah, I mean the way so, the test should be is they should they should do an L maybe an LDL screen, and if it's any and then and then they should do a reflex genetic test, and then if you have a normal result, they should just tell you normal, and they should only tell the people who they found with FH. Um, yeah, yeah, but but the difficulty there is is you know the peop the the children who have say a, an LDL cholesterol at the ninety seventh percentile or something like that. Or yes. Maybe, you know, you know, they are statistically more likely to go on to have high liquid levels in adults. I don't doubt it. Yeah. High liquid levels in adults sure. you know, are associated with high risk of heart disease. Sure. So, but, but the trouble is there's, there's a lot of labeling that happens. Yeah. Right. And, and another big problem with this particular set of recommendations is, although they recommend universal screening between the ages of nine and 11. Yeah. That's actually doesn't need to be fasting. That's, uh, oh dear. Um, uh, a non-LDL cholesterol estimate, I and see. then you get the fasting ones if it's abnormal. But they recommend fasting lipid panels for a large number of children based on risk factors. They didn't calculate this in their report. They should have, but I did. It's about 40% of children qualify for fasting lipid panels beginning at the age of two. Two? My God. Huh. 24 months. Oh boy! Well, so, that's going to be a tough, well, a tough thing to accomplish. Well, yeah, and it's a tough sell to families. And this of is course, study, is that that you try to tell families to bring their preschooler in for a fasting lipid panel, you know, before they even have had breakfast, yeah, you know, way to school or something. Just um, the vast majority of families just blow it off and and just don't bother. Of course, I mean, you know, I, I will say that to try to be more fair one of the things that can happen when you screen children for high lipid levels is you find it and then you screen their parents who hadn't been screened and then you do identify people you know with familiar hypercholesterolemia who are in an age range where the events are starting to happen and yeah where right might that and that's a fair point that that might be some of the benefit but i guess i would say um you know with this kid who's got doesn't have familiar hyperlipidemia but does have you know 96 percentile 97 percentile cholesterol i don't doubt that they're at high risk of having adult high ldl and high cardiovascular events but what i do have a lot of doubts about is whether or not starting their statin in you know adolescence is going to confer a long-term benefit to them i, I there's no data i mean all the statin studies they're they're, they're not even I, they're not even many statin studies for people my age in their 30s they're really statin studies for people 45 and older those are that's where the data is yeah. Well, there are studies show on of surrogate outcomes, you know, carotid yes, intimal media thickness. It, yeah, I, carotid intimal artery. Yeah, yes. So, My so favorite that, outcomes. <laughs> that, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, but one of the problems with not having, you know, attempted to quantify the benefits and risks is that you have children who are... 17, 18, 19, 20. Yeah. And then, you know, they're no longer cared for by pediatricians. And then the adult guidelines start to apply. And, 
if you comp and there's this range of overlap between say 18 to 21 where if you look at the pediatric guidelines i think it's something like it's either four or six times i think it's six times more children qualify for a statin according to the pediatric guidelines than according to the adult guidelines which are for people up to age 39. i see i see interesting yes reading more 19 year olds than 35 year olds yes four times more. yes that's uh that's an unusual inconsistency yeah that's a good point so that's that's an inconsistency that has been pointed out and it all it all arises from not trying to quantify okay how many how many children do we need to screen to find one what will happen to all these people that we label the the one study that is cited as showing the diet works cited by some people not me was the dietary intervention study in children and that was a randomized trial of the the recommended uh step two diet i think it was called and they found a little bit of a difference in ldl cholesterol after three years it was a few milligrams per deciliter i see and then it went away i see but the intervention to achieve that was monthly visits with a nutritionist wow you know which is just not going to happen yeah uh, yeah yeah i think yeah and and when you get to that level one wonders if if we might have better bang for our buck by just trying to make some changes to school lunch for everybody you know trying to shift the whole bell curve towards healthier choices and those kinds of things yeah. and a little bit more exercise instead of keeping these kids prisoners in these schools for all the day um but i'm not, again i'm not the expert on that One of the things I wanted to talk about in the book that I thought was really well presented um, was the wrong and the right definition of p-values and introducing Bayesian thinking. And I, because I think this is something that just comes up so often. I saw a video a few years ago, I think 538 interviewed a bunch of statisticians and they asked them what is a p-value and a lot of them choked and they were unable to provide that definition. So I'm wondering if you might explain you know, just give a taste of what's in the book. You know, what what are the ways in which p-values? What are the misconceptions, and and how do you think about it? And then and then where do you see the role of Bayes? Well, um, as we say in the book, we, we, we're a little bit feel like I need to explain. You know, why are we talking about p-values and confidence intervals in a clinical epidemiology yeah. book? And of course, one reason is that we like teaching it. Um, but another reason is that we feel like the the, the readers or the people taking the class are prepared to understand it better, having been through Bayes' theorem with diagnostic tests. Ah, uh, yes, that's what so, put, So yeah. if you start out teaching about diagnostic tests, you know, by the time you get to chapter 11, where the p-values are, you've gotten pretty comfortable with the idea that you can't get a posterior probability without a prior probability. Sure, yes. That you start with some prior probability, the test results, gives you some evidence in the form of a likelihood ratio that um, uh, that will change your prior probability either, you know, if, if you've got a result that's more common in people who have the disease, then your pro your posterior probability is higher. And if you've got a result that's less common, it goes down. So this whole idea of prior probability um, plus information, it gives you posterior probability or the way you put it in the book, which I think we I, I uh, credit Warren Browner with is what you thought before 
plus new data equals what you think now. Yeah, that's well put. And, and once you sort of internalize that, then you realize that, so the most common error that people make with p-values is they think, oh, if there's p-values 0.05, there's a 95% chance that there really is a difference between right. the two. That's right? the p-value fallacy, oh. yep. Yeah, so, so, but as soon as you understand probability, you realize, okay, so the study gives us evidence or new information, so, but I can't do anything with that unless I have the prior probability because that's prior probability or what you thought before plus new information of what you think now. Sure. If you don't have a what you thought before, then you can't get that posterior probability. Yeah. And that so, the p-value is, is, is only telling you the probability that this would be seen if you assume the null. It's a probability that this result or a more extreme result, assuming the null, but that may not be what you assume at the outset. And it doesn't tell you what your posterior probability that this is true is. Yeah. yeah. So we, we draw uh, an analogy with specificity. Yeah. Does this, um, the same, you know, you mentioned the survey of statisticians or, and if yeah. you ask clinicians, that's way worse. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> what a p-value means. But there's also a survey that says, you know, a person tests positive for some disease and the test is 95% specific, right? Yes. What is the fact that they happen and people say, oh, well, so yeah, must be 95%. Uh-uh, yeah. You need to know the population prevalence, yeah. In fact, in fact, I can't remember if we put it in the book because there might have been copyright issues, but um, but there was actually a, um, a car talk puzzler that was this exact. Oh, was it? Oh, that's talk. terrific. But there was a car talk puzzler about anal cranial inversion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was no better t there was no better radio show to become better at thinking about medicine than car talk. I thought I thought it really had a lot of gems and a lot of relevance to to medicine. Yeah, well, so we use this example because uh, we both like car talk, where where the test for anal anal cranial inversion is ninety five percent specific. And <laughs> Higher probability is one in a thousand. Yeah. So, so it's that it's that that kind of thing uh, that people need to uh, understand the the need to have a prior probability before you can get a posterior probability. Yeah. And it's even actually the problem is even worse with confidence intervals. Confidence oh yes. Trickier, right? More tricky. Yes, I so agree. People think, oh, that must mean I can have ninety five percent confidence that the true value is in that interval. Uh uh. <laughs> it's either in there or it isn't there, but if you repeat the experiment many, many times, 95% of the time, the true value will be in there. I think that's a tricky one too. Yeah. Um, no, that, that, that's good. Um, I know our time has run out, but, um, only because of my delinquency and, and not figuring out the right zoom or Google meet. And I'm sorry about that, Dr. Newman, but, um, you know, I think this is a great primer. I mean, I think you've got, you've piqued people's interest in terms of, you know, why clinical epidemiology really matters, why it makes for a good researcher, but certainly makes for a good doctor as well. And folks who are interested in learning more, um, you know, they they do well to pick up the second edition to the book, Evidence-Based Diagnosis and Introduction to Clinical Epidemiology. Um, and uh, it's now in paperback. Uh, I guess it's only in paperback. Is that right? Paperback and Kindle. Yeah, uh, yeah it's available, uh, I think, Kindle. And also there's some non-Kindle electronic version as well. I just, I just want to, one more thing yeah. to plug is problems. Yeah. Oh, is, yes. The problems at the end of every chapter. Problems at the end of every chapter with the answers. Yeah. 
And we went back and forth about this because I didn't want to put the answers in because they're my favorite poems. I want to keep using it for a course. <laughs> you're right. You're giving it away. I insisted on putting the answers in. He said, we'll write new problems. Oh, Don't boy. Worry. That's more work. No, it's more work, but it's fun. And the other yeah. thing is we have every year um, a final exam problem writing contest where all the students get to submit potential final exam problems for the course. And then we can pick out the our favorite ones and, and then uh, use some of them for teaching in subsequent classes with their permission, of course. That's terrific. That's a great, and that is a great uh, kind of prompt because you really know something well when you know the right way to, to ask about it. So Dr. Newman, thanks so much for doing this. It's a pleasure to have you on Plenary Session. We'll have to have you back to discuss, you know, one of your, one of the issues that really intrigues you and maybe take a deep dive on that. Okay. Yeah. Anytime. Thanks so much for doing it. My pleasure. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.